0: WAPG, Airline Pilot Guy.
1: Airline Pilot Guy, episode 276. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 305 in the Doubletree Suites Hotel in South Park, which is like south of Charlotte. It's, it's like a neighborhood, a neighborhood of, neighborhood. of Charlotte. Charlotte. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, who's that? Where did that voice come from? Anyway, um, let's see. In this episode, free puppies. More news, your feedback. Oh, wait a minute. No somebody messed up my script we're going to talk about some aviation related news maybe and of course your feedback in a new plane tales episode blackbird bye bye so get all settled in tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions electronic devices powered on flight 275 is ready for pushback
2: Woohoo! Woo-hoo.
1: over modulation sorry Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, as I mentioned, an airline pilot for a major legacy carrier here in the good old U.S. of A. And joining me today, sitting right next to me, actually, here in Charlotte. Doctor? 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 Doctor.
3: Doctor? Doctor. Doctor.
2: A doctor?
1: Doctor. Doctor?
2: Doctor. Doctor.
1: And you're a physiatrist, doctor.
2: Physiatrist.
1: Physiatrist, excuse me. Um, Physiatrist. Marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and of course, the Miss World 2017 winner, Dr. Stephanie Plummer.
2: I mean, I'm trying to be humble about all of that, but you did a good job. I did a good job this year, yeah. Yeah, you didn't tell
1: anybody for the longest time. Well, you know, like I said. (laughs)
2: Cool,
1: but. And so uh, she's here with yes. me. Yeah, thank
2: you for coming to Charlotte. Well, you're welcome. It's rocking. always fun to hang out in person and do a show together in person. So
1: I love to, Charlotte. I don't love the uh, not so
2: much the ramp, not the ramp people at Charlotte, at
1: the airport. But that's another. But the rest of Charlotte, yes, it's Good. perfect. And also joining us from across the pond, we have a former fighter pilot, professional photographer, a commercial airline captain on the wide bodies for Acme Red, Captain Nick Anderson.
4: Hi there, Jeff. And uh, hi, Steph. Lovely to be back on the show again. Absolute pleasure. I hope everyone's bandwidth holds out tonight so uh, we can all have a decent show. It was a bit of a nightmare last week because it must cause you a lot of work. Fingers crossed
1: this time. Well, thank you very much for your sentiment, and yes, it did. It was quite a quite a bunch of work, but it's worth it because this is a labor of love. And speaking of love, we have <laughs> So sweet. We have a former regional pilot, now a Mad Dog operator for ACME Air Mainline. Captain Dana Colton. Good afternoon, uh, APG
5: community. Great to see everyone and be back. Uh, and uh, Another great show ahead of us. Had an exciting day today. I'll tell you a little bit about that a little later on. And uh, looking forward to uh, having another late night with my friend over there across the pond. Hopefully we can keep him up late enough. Captain Nick.
4: That's uh, what I'll she said. I'll be doing said. my best. <laughs> but it's like uh, 20 past 11 now. And if it's a three-hour show like usual, well, then I'm going to be. Uh, so
2: Dana up is up. drinking coffee, but you've chosen something slightly different to help keep you awake, Captain Nick.
4: Uh, yeah. There's something about having a few beers. Uh, is, is that the? Uh, audience? That's somebody at the door. I think it's an
1: APG <laughs> community a, a member, uh, a fan. We have. Uh, wait a minute.
4: Do you have APG fans bearing pizzas.
1: Yes, we have. Uh, we did order some. Pe- oh, you can see uh, Steph uh, in the background uh, signing some piece of paper, and uh, we're going to see the exchange what very giving
4: an r- autograph so, to this APG list.
1: Yeah, that's what it is. Oh, you're Doctor Steph, aren't you? Can I may I have your autograph? Awesome. So uh, Doctor Steph and I were setting up here, and uh, uh, we were getting very very hungry. So. Bye, Steph- bye Came up with a great idea. Let's order a pizza, and I went yes. So, it has just arrived. So, anyway, uh, great to be back with everybody again on the crew and in the community. And uh, wow, we have a lot to talk about on today's show. As speaking of the community, uh, we've we talked about the New York meetup last week, last Monday night, and. Let's see. That was um, a a trip that uh, I I flew up for uh, on my own and met a bunch of great people. We talked about it in the last episode. Uh, Then I left on another trip on Wednesday of that week, a four-day trip. And the second night, I ended up out on the West Coast in San Jose. And Fred Sampson uh, contacted me and said, hey, let's, let's go flying if you come out here. I got in right before noon and uh fred came over to the hotel picked me up we went to palo alto uh kilo papa alpha Os- o- oscar it looks like Kum pow to me uh, K- K-P-A-O. K-P-A-O. k-p-a-o and uh we uh headed off in a uh, in a 172 and uh took off out of palo alto flew across the south bay over the beautiful eastern um east bay hills and, uh, and you know, staying below the uh, the low, well, not really low, but you know, ceilings. It was kind of a overcast day. Went over to Livermore and uh, did some landings there, and then came back uh, across the South Bay and did an extended uh, uh, final for uh, returning to uh, Pal- Palo Alto. Pow, K pow, Kung pow, um, Kung pow, back to Kung pow. And uh, in the in the process of. Because uh, I was asking him about the uh, the Apple um,
2: uh-huh. circular,
1: yeah, kind of very modern looking thing. And so we got pretty close to it. I took a little bit of video. Maybe I'll upload that and put it on the uh, on the YouTube channel and then put a link to it in the show notes so you can look at it, too. It was very cool. And then right over the top of uh, Moffitt Field, which is very close to Palo Alto. And uh, I think Google kind of owns well, – that smells good, that pizza. Mm. I got to start. Um, Sorry. and, uh, so anyway, learned all Jeff, kinds of Jeff filmeth Jeff
5: said to stop waving your banana.
1: Okay. Sorry, Jeff. I know that's oh, titillating for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, um, I was putting out there some kind of a message out there for Jeff. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's get back to the uh, about aviation in the show. Uh, So anyway, I had a great time uh, flying with Fred. And then uh, we went over. uh, I mentioned something about flying drones because Fred is a very accomplished drone operator a racing uh, drone operator and he uh, opened up his trunk which apparently is where he keeps most of everything in his life in the trunk of his car and uh, he had all these drones and goggles for first person viewer fpv i think that's what this sound stands for and we said oh let's go find a place to fly these things so we uh we're in the in the Heart of the Silicon Valley, past all these, you know, passing by all these buildings, you know, Google and, and, uh, and, you know, I mentioned Apple and
2: Yahoo and Yahoo and and
1: all these people that you see in the Silicon Valley. And we have found this little baseball park and, uh, he took the little, like miniature racing drone out and put these goggles on and was out there doing amazing things with uh, with that. And I'm of course, I was looking at my watch going, well, we said we were going to do a meetup out here at five o'clock and it's like four, o'clock. it's getting close to five o'clock. And I'm thinking, well, maybe this place is really close. <laughs> well, we finally left there. And then I said, well, so how, how long is it going to take us to get there? And he goes, uh, probably about half an hour or more on, based on the traffic. <laughs> so in the meantime, I'd announced that if you're out there on the uh, on the West Coast in the in the Bay Area, and you want to uh, get together with some fellow Av geeks, uh, head over to Faultline Brewing Company, and that's what we did. And when we arrived there, there were already one, two, three, four, like four or five people already. I had a nice little table out there on the outside um, of the uh, Faultline, Brew- beautiful uh, beautiful building and and uh, venue for having a meetup. And so. I'll put some pictures of that in the in the show notes so you can kind of see, you know, what it's like to, to attend one of these meetups. It's a, it's a great time, and uh, I uh, got to see a, a bunch of people that I've met before and um, some new people that I haven't yet met until, uh, what was it, Thursday, I guess. Yeah. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, talked airplanes and drank great beer and ate some good food and... Uh, it was, a, it was a great time. So thank you everybody for, uh, if you were um, involved in that meetup, thanks for, for heading out and uh, taking the time because I know that some of you had to had to drive quite a ways. Some, some were actually, you know, living in the San Francisco area and oh, they, yeah. to go all the way down to where we were in Mountain View, I think, uh, which I think, or, or is it, um, I think it was Mountain View. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's all, they're all, you know, kind of next to each other out there in the uh, Silicon Valley. We had a grand time, so. Uh, look forward to doing that again sometime. <sighs> Let's see. Oh, and then the next day, uh, th- that whole week was just full of meetups because we had the New York and then the mm-hmm. San Jose. And then when I was in Tampa, I was contacted by Sean McHale. And he said, hey, I'm going to be driving in from Fort Myers on Friday. And I felt really bad because he sent me an email like a couple days before that. And I didn't respond to it. didn't see it until I was in the van going from the Tampa airport to the hotel in Tampa. And I saw that he had... Mm-hmm. Contract, tried to contact me a couple of days ago or a couple of days before that and I thought oh yeah he probably thinks I'm just blowing him off but I wasn't I said oh I'm sorry I'm just seeing it I'm seeing it now you know if you're in the area come by the hotel you know I'm going to be busy editing the 275 uh, audio and uh, so he and his fiance Penny uh, showed up to the uh, hotel lounge which is the very first place that I uh, had High li IPA oh. Yeah, so very special,
2: sentimental and very sentimental. Yes. Yeah. Nostalgic.
1: Very nostalgic. And uh had a nice visit with them. And so there you go. Wow, three, basically three APG meetups in one week for me. So, top that if you can. Steph.
2: I can't, but I had one yesterday. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, where? Here. Here? Oh yeah, with yeah. anybody uh, that you know or anybody that'd be interesting to- what
2: looks familiar <laughs>
1: no just me no
2: it was just the-
1: we had a we had an hr meeting you know talking about some of the uh, you know the structure of the crew and who we need to let go and maybe uh, some prospects for uh for new crew members and uh
2: yeah yeah well we'll continue that meeting after the show tonight yeah if you guys can stick around for just a little bit, we'll uh, no, 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 no. no. We actually just went no, over I'll, to I'll in the bed. Okay, fair enough. Um, we'll just text What's the name of the place we went to? Burton's Burton's Grill, grill and, and Bar, bar. Not, not bar and grill. Yes, yes, <laughs> and uh, had some lovely IPAs there and uh, mm. swordfish kebabs, mm-hmm. not kebabs, kebabs,
1: kebabs, kebabs. We don't uh, have kebabs here, no,
2: no, no. Um, that was really nice, and I mean, I was trying to think what I've done in the past. Week and a half. Well, because working. I didn't see you guys last week because I was stuck at work, and you know, just living the dream.
1: Living the dream.
2: Work, work, work. Poking work, people. Work, work. Work,
1: yeah. work, Poking people with sharp
2: objects. Work, work, work. Steroids. Yeah. Work, work,
1: work. Okay. Well, that's yeah. enough of that.
2: Okay. No one, no one cares about <laughs> that here, do they? I'm sorry. Nothing really interesting. I did do some skydiving the weekend before.
1: Oh, nice.
2: Yeah.
1: So obviously successful. Successful. Because you're still here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I think six that weekend. Wow.
1: It's still crazy I don't know why you want to do that, but I guess it's thrilling.
2: It is, that, you know, it's 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 like anything else. It's enjoyable, first of all. It's fun. There's a learning aspect of it, always. There's a challenge aspect of it, always. And then there's, you know, camaraderie. the risk of dying
1: aspect of it.
5: Yeah, yeah when I was <laughs> well, flying, it's like, jumpers. you know,
2: stepping outside your front door every morning.
1: <laughs> True. Yes. Jump is, I could
5: never understand why people wanted to jump out of a perfect... Perfectly good airplane. This doesn't no. make sense to me.
1: But did the people just seem crazy, or did they hide it well? Yeah, no, they're crazy, definitely, verifiably.
5: Okay. Yeah, yeah. We, we have some
2: pretty sane people. And you know, it'd they,
5: they always—I I don't know about uh, with your group over there stuff, but it always seems like somebody leaves an odor before they leave.
2: No, that's pretty standard. Oh, that's
5: yeah,
6: so nice. Standard, yeah. Thank you. I'm yeah, eating my so, pizza right
1: now.
2: <laughs> no, we're, we're pretty considerate. Um, most people try not to.
1: Keep talking because I'm eating my pizza. I, <laughs> <that. laughs> I can hear
2: that.
5: I can say this, that when I got to see certain parts of meal anatomy, we got an extra 1,000, 2, 2,000 feet out of the jump. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Because you flew skydivers. Okay, yeah. So you were just as bad as them, is what you're saying. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. And moving on. Captain Nick, how was your week?
4: (laughs) Well, I didn't get to see many parts of female anatomy. (laughs) I came back from New York, uh, had a few days off, and um, I don't know, really done very much. Certainly not in the aviation way. The company's been pestering me to do some extra tips, but uh, my life is full right now. My wife has got me uh, tidying uh, my uh, room so that I can uh, uh, we can entertain uh, one of the APG listeners who's going to be flying over the UK. Oh, for long? Who, dear dear, tell? That's Liz Piper. She's coming over to uh, uh, stay that with us, and she'll be uh, going to Wimbledon with uh, my
1: wife. Very nice. That's awesome.
2: Sweet. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll this.
2: Just a couple weeks away, right? Um, beginning of July is that yeah, what Wimbledon is? Okay. Yeah, end, end
1: of we'll, the month. We'll be expecting uh, some some video and audio.
4: Oh, I'm sure we can generate something like that. Okay, for sure. Or, or even
5: possibly a actual uh, show with her as a guest host.
4: Uh, there you go. Yeah, we that's could a possibility. possibility. Uh, we, uh, we could do a show together.
1: Well. Looking forward to that. uh, That must be a a trip of a lifetime to go and and not only visit with Nick and Jilly, Jilly, uh, but also to uh, go to Wimbledon. Uh, That's a pretty
4: amazing thing. Yeah. If if you're into tennis, it's a great spot. Yeah. It's very nice.
1: All right. Well, very good. And then, uh, Dana, last but not least, uh, apparently uh, you did something interesting very recently
5: yes i had a fantastic day um paint the picture of the hotel it was very nice to uh, provide a ride over to the
1: yes dana you see me hello hello well i muted on i muted our mics but for some reason it muted dana too
2: i don't know well that how did that weird? happen yeah i guess so sorry can you hear me we we're trying yeah. to so this thin crust pizza is fantastic it's also very noisy when you.
1: Well, wait a minute. Now, let me let me mute us again and see what happens. All right. I'll try it now. All right. So, the hotel was very nice to
5: provide a ride over with some. Um, if. Museum. In Ohio.
1: Okay. I'm going to have to translate that. He said he went to a museum. That had a lot of airplanes and they were big and small and some shiny. Were tiny, tiny, shiny, and, and some were, uh, they there were different colors.
3: Ooh.
1: Okay. Give it another try, what Dana, because we're, wise? we're not I, hearing you. You're breaking
4: anyways, up. It's, yeah. It's just dropping out. I'm afraid. Uh,
1: breaking up. Try it again. Help me.
5: Dana. If I'm breaking up. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Maybe.
1: Sort of. No. Every other word separately
2: <laughs> yep like every third word i think is what we're getting. yeah
1: this is basically none of this We're gonna, is going to get into the podcast because we, i don't even have any idea what you're saying so i can't even make it up yeah could you write it down and send it
7: in? <laughs> send, us some, send
1: us some
2: feedback my video
1: <laughs> yeah turn <laughs> off the video there you go
2: i killed the, i killed the video how's that any better uh yeah For the moment yes yeah all right okay, okay okay All so right.
1: so uh you you visited someplace kind of special a, a place that I would like to visit sometime if if I'm not breaking up this tent
5: <clears throat> the uh nice to allow uh, a ride which a uh, stay. they went ahead and dropped me off at about nine o'clock this
1: morning <laughs> no we're not even getting your Can <laughs> <laughs> you hear me no, okay. just well, when we, you say stuff like "Can you hear me?" <laughs> we heard that.
2: That always seems to come through. Everything <laughs> no, else, nothing is nothing like... else.
1: <laughs> Something about somebody gave you a ride. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, forget it. I'll just I'll just
5: email it to you, and then you can. I'll I'll, rec- I'll record on my phone. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah. Sorry, Dana. Um, that lovely Crown Plaza uh, bandwidth is apparently not doing. <laughs> can you can you uh, do a hotspot hotspot from your phone? my <laughs> Neville says, Dana, you need to stop playing that special video in the corner of your laptop.
2: <laughs> I like Dave's comment, though. <laughs> uh, where I missed it. I don't know if I should read
1: that. Oh, um, where? It's
2: right above Neville's.
1: <laughs> oh, Dave. I thought you said James. Oh, no, Dave. Oh, no. Let's not read that.
2: Sorry. <laughs> <not read> <laughs> I did get a good chuckle. Out.
1: Very clever. Well, folks, sorry about that. Sorry, Dana. You like to hear me chew pizza.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's so noisy. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, I guess we should just move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Dana. Maybe maybe you can um like shut it shut it all down and restart or something. I don't know if that would help or not. Because we want you on the show. We we, we like your input on things, but uh, this is not going to work at all. All right. Yeah, why don't you just, uh, just shut it down and then uh, come back and see if that is better.
2: It's like, the thing of it is, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just not sure if he, he either heard us. I, I'm sure Dan is just sitting there listening to this, but it's like, we can't tell if you heard us or if you're saying something or there's just <laughs> a long pregnant pause. <laughs>
1: And you're just like staring at us like, I hate you. (laughs) Pretty much. Okay. Apparently, he's restarting. He's restarting. Okay. (sighs) So, you know what we need? We need a sponsor out there who will provide us individual mobile super high bandwidth devices. So, no matter where we are, we can just, we don't need the hotel, stinking hotel Wi-Fi. We can just, look
2: HR is going to look into that HR.
1: Okay. Uh-huh. We'll see if there's something out there like that and how much that might cost. It might be worth, you know, it's uh, a
2: satellite dish you have to set up. Oh yeah. Outside. Like that
1: might be a little, um, March. yeah. But, uh, anyway, if you're listening out there and you provide, uh, the, these kind of services or work for a company that does this and, uh, you know, you know, you want, want to be a sponsor of the show, <laughs> we would love it. <laughs> Oh, anyway. Um, Do we lose Nick? No, Nick, you're still here. there, right?
0: I'm,
1: not, I'm not here. Okay, very good. All right. Well, let's go back to the uh, excuse me, Evernote and anything else we want to uh, talk about. Well, I was really looking forward to hearing what About the music Dana. I know he, he Dana actually
2: did interesting things today. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully he'll come back yeah. and or just Record it on his own, and we can insert that into the show right, so you can right. hear it. Because, it's good stuff. Okay.
1: Um, well, I think then uh, perhaps we should uh, coffee fund? move this train wreck on to the next
4: terrible, terrible track.
1: Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot. Here we go. It's now time for us to talk about the coffee fund.
8: Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks.
1: I love coffee, I love beer I love the java Java and not here Coffee and tea and the java and me Bugger,
0: bugger, 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 bugger,
1: bugger. did you hear did you hear her lovely voice I
6: love
0: she can jam, actually sing all
1: right the coffee fund Ooh, is your way time. to contribute to the show the financially and if you have the resources to do so go, bugger, please consider bugger, 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 it by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee and you can join those who have used the coffee fund classic method And who would they be, you ask me? Well, I can tell you. Since the last show, Elizabeth, oh, we need to mention Elizabeth Piper, Liz, we call her. She donated a very generous amount of money for our New York layover. I mean, not layover, the New York um, meetup. And... uh, it, was, it occurred after we recorded the last show, and uh, so we, we weren't able to mention it. But thank you so much, Liz, for providing uh, some funds to offset the huge amount of money that we spent on, on beer alcohol. and food, <laughs> yeah. but mostly beer and yeah, alcohol. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. And uh, let's see. Roger Preston. Michael Bambrick. Philip Boyd. Uh well, we're also contributors to the Coffee Fund via the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And another way you can do it is to become a patron of the show. And since the last episode we have a new patron. His name is Roger's turn. We call him Radio Roger. He was at the New York meetup. And so thank you very much, Roger, for becoming a patron of the show. Your your contributions, all of you who have contributed in the past and continue to uh, support oh girl, the show oh girl, we really oh girl, appreciate you yay. and again if you want to learn more about how you might become part of the coffee fund cadre head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee
8: drop a nickel in the pot joe i take
6: them a slow
0: wait a wait a i love coffee i love tea i love tea
1: I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. cup. Yay! And now it's time for.
4: Stand by
7: for News!
1: From Simon's wonderful site, the Aviation Herald, where we get a lot of the uh, the news items on the show. Uh, an incident, China Eastern Airbus 330-200 was taking off from Sydney, um, operating Flight 736 to uh, Shanghai Pudong in China, was in the initial climb out of Sydney's runway 34 left when the crew reported a left-hand engine, a Trent 772, Uh, fault and requested to maintain runway heading. The aircraft leveled off at 5,000 feet. The crew shut the engine down. The crew subsequently reported it appeared that the left-hand engine's cowling was damaged and requested a runway inspection. The engine suffered the damage about one second after takeoff rotation. Air traffic control informed the crew that a runway inspection did not find any debris on the runway. The aircraft returned to Sydney for a safe landing on runway 34 left about 40 minutes after departure. A large hole was visible on the inboard side of the left-hand engine's intake. And we'll put a link to this uh, Aviation Herald article in the show notes. has some nice pictures of that uh, that intake cowling, uh, as they mentioned in here, uh, on the left inboard left side. Like a huge – I mean, that must be a – is that a six-foot? Oh, I, I mean, think it's bigger big than engine. that because
2: look at the um, – you yeah. know, there's a firefighter or someone mm-hmm. on the ground next to it. It's a bigger – or at least longer than he is tall.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Huge, huge, uh, and and this is not the first time that this has happened with this particular engine. Well, not this exact engine, but this model of engine. Um, trying to remember what uh, other airline this happened to. Was it Egypt Air?
4: Egypt uh, A three thirty two hundred at Cairo, May the fifteenth, two thousand and seventeen. They rejected uh, due to the engine problem, and it turned out to be a very similar failure. So, I guess both of the, both of these
1: occurred like sometime during the takeoff or shortly right after the takeoff when the engine is at a, is at a very high power setting. Um, and not, you know, really you don't have a lot of airflow at that point. Not like you're, you know, getting a lot of pressure from the inside of the cowling. It wouldn't seem to me. Uh, but... I don't know. What do you think about this, Nick? What, what's going on? Have you have? I know you fly the three thirty, and I, I know that not this model, and I'm not sure if the three thirty that you fly uh, uses these engines. But have you had any uh, issues
4: like this? At, we have. Uh, uh, we have Trents. I uh, don't know if it's exactly the same uh, one. Uh, we fly the three thirty three hundred series, but it's uh, really only a, a sort of weight and uh, you know uh, configuration, field chain difference. Um, it might be slightly different engines uh i i know is the answer uh first time i've heard of this um and uh i have to say it's a little bit concerning uh because uh, when you fly an aircraft like this and uh you have such a large chunk of uh, the engine calendars appear then uh, you know the potential is that you'll lose the engine now i suspect uh, they probably shut the engine down anyway but uh um, initially there were lots of um, thoughts that it might be an uncontained failure which is a really serious problem and it wasn't that. It was just a failing of the the front end of the um, engine cowling and there are two reasons postulated by Rolls-Royce for this. Uh, one being a delamination of the acoustic panels on the inside of the cowling and you peer down the front of these engines you see uh, um, the Surface on the inside uh, is peppered with timely holes, uh, and that is, um, you know, part of the acoustic. uh, um, Well, uh, what's the the word? You
2: attenuation.
4: Uh, It's delaminates. I guess it'll uh, come apart. It's, uh, um, uh, or it could have been a a failure of uh, the killer tubes, which. uh, Uh, warm that portion of the cowling and de-ice it, either of which uh, have been cited as problems, Uh, and both of which really come down to maintenance inspections. Uh, I suspect, uh, that's only a a guess from my point of view, but uh, uh, if they did have a a delamination that wasn't spotted uh, in its regular inspections, then uh, this might be the result of it, and the same with piccolo tube failure. If, uh, If that occurs and you don't get the engineers to pick it up in time then uh, I guess that may uh, be another reason for it to actually then failing
1: well whatever's happening here I'm hoping that they'll be able to nail it down and uh, you know fix any airplanes that may be uh, exhibiting these kind of uh, symptoms on the uh, on the acoustic uh, material delamination or whatever on the intake I mean, so, it's just strange yeah. that they should happen
2: so close together, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure those planes were not, you know, I'm just curious, are they, I'm sorry, I'm chewing pizza here still, but, um, you know, were the aircraft of similar ages, were the engines of similar ages or cycles, is there, you know, I'm sure they're looking at all of those things. but I don't
1: know, but I bet they were, because yeah. they were both 330-200 models, uh, so they were probably manufactured relatively close to the same time. So, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that, but it was interesting. But uh, fortunately, they got the airplane back around safely. And, uh, you know, I, I, what comes to mind to me is the uh, Southwest Airlines 737, which was an entirely uh, different engine and different airframe and everything else. And uh, probably a completely different problem. Didn't the whole intake just disappear off yeah, that one? Yeah. I wondered, We never heard exactly what happened with that one, did we?
2: I don't know if we ever going back to look at it.
1: Hmm. it. Anyway, so uh, that was that. Um, spitfires. Uh, Dana mentioned that he had seen a spitfire today. Dana, uh, it looks like you're back with us. Uh, you want to give it a shot? Yeah. Is it any better still or modular? It's not any better, unfortunately.
2: Do you hear us okay? I'm just curious
1: loud and clear no oh, really wow that's weird I mean I guess it's just maybe the up the up bandwidth that you have uh, or you're working with is just not very good uh, but anyway uh, we have this uh, news item I was I think it was in my Twitter feed a Spitfire crash uh, on takeoff and they have a, a YouTube video of the actual takeoff of the Spitfire crash at an air show in the north of France and uh, I really don't have a lot of information about it and I was hoping by now that we'll know exactly what happened but you'll definitely want to watch this video, as the Spitfire is applying power and taking off, it appears that it almost looked like it hit some kind of a rut or something in the runway, but I don't think so. it, looked it like, just go
2: like nose over? It just
1: went nose over. Huh. You, you didn't see I didn't it? Watch oh, it, no. It's, it's yeah. pretty amazing. The, uh, the pilot uh, was injured, but they were able to, you see this crowd of people mm-hmm. in this little frame here, uh, went out to the airplane and kind of lifted it up and got him, pulled him away from... You know the thing ended up inverted. Uh, they pulled him away, and uh, he was injured. I'm not sure how seriously, uh, but he was alive after the uh, crash. And uh, and the, the, it shows the as it knows down, the propeller was hitting the ground, and pieces. I think somebody in the uh, in the crowd, obviously, uh, actually got injured from one of the particles or parts of the uh, the propeller flying off. Um, do you do you know anything at all about this, uh, Nick? I know you. wasn't well, really near up you. Only picking
4: a bit of chit chat uh, around the scene, uh, which was that it was uh, a French Air Force pilot. Uh, I think he uh, is flies uh, Raphael's. He may even be a display or a test pilot. Not exactly certain about that. Um, his name, I have it. Not that it really makes an awful lot of difference to us. Now, now. you just want to say the that, French name. I can tell then a bit, and I, I never know whether to, to pronounce that or not. Would... But uh, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, what? Which, which word is it?
4: How do you? Yeah, well, I'm just trying to. I, I know you it's going to cheer then. Um, yeah, when I can find when I find it, I will. <laughs> uh, and uh, the uh, the the word is that uh, actually one wheel hits and so on. Uh, dug in slightly so it, it yawed and then tipped forward, but it, I, it didn't look like he corrected quite quickly enough to whip the power off uh, before it um, it turned onto its back. It was a pretty late model, there aren't very many of them. There, there. Cedric Rue, R U E T or Rue, Rue. I'm not yeah, sure, yeah, that sounds R-U-E-T. close enough, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so. Um, Yeah, it's it was a Model 19, Mark 19, which is Griffin-powered rather than a uh, Merlin-powered one, which is why the front end looks slightly different to the ones you're familiar with, with a kind of uh, low bulge uh, at the base of the uh, engine cowling. This is kind of more um, tubular, parallel. Uh, throughout, uh, and it's one of the most powerful ones. It's got a vast propeller on it. I don't know how many blades it's got, but quite a lot. So it would be a handful to go. But it, and if, uh, uh, yeah, if it's on soft ground and uh, if if you're overcooked, the application of power, I think it's pretty easy to stand on its nose. I, I watched one do exactly that um, at uh, Biggin Hill, one of the Biggin Hill ladies' place. I flew a tornado in there for a Uh, A ground static we were sitting on the fuselage watching uh, uh, one of the quite um, well-known families of uh, display pilots uh, and it was the son uh, who didn't get much further than his parking position before he stood on the nose on its nose so it's it's quite easily done I think
1: you know I've never I've never flown a tail dragger, and I, I would imagine either. that that would be a very tricky thing, especially one like this that has so much power.
2: Yeah, a lot of power, and you know, uneven or unprepared surface. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. A bit sad about the girl that got a bit of uh, propeller stuck in her, but I think she was okay. It was uh, a trauma to her leg. Well, she has a
1: memento
2: oh, oh,
4: from the air show. <laughs> She'll be looking for. She's not the one she she was
2: looking for, I'm sure.
4: (laughs) She was injured on the the shoulder, and a 48 year old man complained of trauma to her leg. 48 year old (laughs) man. Let's. This this is. I'm reading this from uh, Aviation Safety Network, and they were getting their. um, Sure, Cross gender 48 year
1: old Yeah, we have to be, you know, we got to be careful now. You know, know, it's. Exactly right. It doesn't matter. Right.
4: Could be a kind of trauma to A
1: 40
2: year old person. But it was not.
4: Person, yeah. yes. yes, person. <laughs> <laughs> but it was not. seen
2: an in injury hospital. to his and/or her. His or her. Yeah. <laughs> and/or uh, her. Yeah. And
4: yeah, exactly right. Okay. I love the picture they've got here of uh, about 20 people helping to lift this whole aircraft up to uh, try and free the, uh, cop, the pilot because it flipped right over on its back. And, of course, uh, the the lowest two lowest points when it's on its back will be the, the fin and the cockpit. So he was just completely jammed inside. So it's a good job, but nothing ruptured, nothing caught fire, otherwise it have been cooked.
1: Absolutely. I was very impressed uh, watching the video how quickly the people from the crowd just swarmed around and it and, got him, and got him out of there and lifted awesome. it up. And it was you know, very impressive. Yeah.
5: Hey, hey Jeff. Yes. Can you hear me now? Uh, we can hear you. Does it sound bad or does it sound good?
1: Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't sound as good as the uh, ATR microphone, but we can hear you fine, and it's not breaking up.
5: Good, because I'm I joined the call via my cell phone.
1: Well, there you go. It's my Excellent. cell service. Okay. Awesome.
5: Now, now, if I just had that Apple adapter, I could plug in the phone microphone to it, and I don't have to leave oh, the that's adapter okay. for sure.
1: That's okay. Um, this way, your phone will last a little bit longer, because if you plug in that adapter and you it doesn't have power, it. Yeah. yeah, it uh, there is an adapter that no. actually has tr- a power that you can right. apply to it, and then you don't have to worry about it. You can keep keep it plugged in, but it, it zaps your battery power very, very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, well, I'm glad that you finally came up with a the solution there, Dana. So- Let's finish And, um, and
5: I'm and, and I'm on Bluetooth with my headset, so I am plugged into power. So I have my iPhone to use.
1: Oh, awesome, awesome. So
5: yeah, it, it won't it won't zap the power.
1: Great, great. Okay, perfect.
5: So we have a solution.
1: Great. Well, Dana is back with us. We're very happy about that. Uh, and then I uh, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to continue with the um, with the news, and then we're going to go back good. and uh, talk to you about your uh, day at the USAF uh, Museum in Dayton.
5: That will be
1: fantastic. All right. Um, Let's see. Now, this is an interesting one. And I've seen a a couple of uh, different um, explanations as to what happened. Uh, The headline, and this, by the way, was sent in from a couple of you, um, one including Sean McHale. So thank you, sir. Um, Horror on Bristol Ah. Easyjet Flight. As Pilot says, there's only a 50-50 chance of the engines working. Now I would have said at least a 50/50 50 50 chance. Yeah. And that way, you know, glass would, half full, glass yeah. half
2: empty type of thing. And
1: you know, maybe they'd say, well this guy's just kidding around. Well anyway, I saw this and I went, "What? <laughs> what is going on here?" So it says this is according to the Plymouth Herald.co.uk. Passengers That
2: <laughs> one that newspaper. <laughs> it's not a
1: really a really good newspaper. It's
2: probably just small town, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Small town,
1: yeah. Well, passengers on an easy jet flight were horrified when the pilot asked them to vote on whether to take off, as there was only a 50-50 chance of both engines working. The stunned holidaymakers were on the tarmac at Malaga Airport, Spain, or Malaga, um whichever way you pronounce it. Okay. Yeah. Malaga? Malaga. Mm. Um, um, okay. Uh, When the pilot asked for a show of hands as to whether they should take off, the unnamed pilot told passengers there was a high chance that only one engine would be working. But the request, which came after the flight had already been delayed for 40 hours, left one exhausted passenger so traumatized that he threw up. I don't know what he threw up. Threw up his hands, maybe? No? Maybe? Maybe? The contents of his
5: contents stomach? Contents of his Stomach. Yes. Okay. Yeah, probably his stomach.
1: <laughs> the tourists were supposed to fly to Bristol on Thursday, June 8th, but finally boarded a plane on Saturday, June 10th in a state of relief until the pilot told them he could not start one of the engines. Still at the boarding gate, the pilot came out of the cockpit to explain the situation and asked for a show of hands. The passengers... <laughs> what is that noise? <laughs> so... The downside, Dana, is that you can't hear all the noises that you're making. <laughs> so, sorry. It's okay. I, I was
2: it's zipping up like, my. Oh, <laughs> okay. That makes more sure sense. You I, was were. Co-
5: <laughs> I was closing my no, my case. It's, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> all right. I'll be. I'll be. I'll be more aware of the you um, know, if mute you're, button. If you're going to play, sorry.
1: if you're going to be playing with your zipper, then go ahead and turn the video <laughs> and the audio off. No. Long okay. zipper.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, back to the article. Certainly
5: not live. Bye.
1: Yeah. Uh, let's see. The passengers eventually flew back on a replacement aircraft on Saturday. Uh, passenger Terry Hill said, he said we could stay on the plane. We'd been on it waiting for an hour at this point and been in M- Malaga. No, now I'm not sure exactly. Malaga. Malaga. Uh, For two nights extra already, or he'd see if we would be allowed to get off again. Uh, At this uh, point, there was a a bit of a mutiny on the plane, an awful lot of shouting and people crying and demanding to get off. Okay, so anyway, it goes on and on about the horrific situation and everything else. So I thought, you know, something just doesn't sound quite it's not ringing true with me. I can't I can't believe an EasyJet pilot would say something like, well, there's only a 50/50 chance that the, you know, the engine's going to work and let's take a vote and everything else. So, I saw this other article from travelpulse.com and let's see. This is a little bit different version of the story. It says, EasyJet is under fire following a moment of confusion aboard a delayed flight from Malaga to Bristol. Passengers told the Daily Mail that the captain asked for them to vote on whether to take off, even though there was a chance only one engine would be working. One passenger said the pilot asked for a shortcut. We already talked about this. Um, So... Uh, let's see. EasyJet denied that the pilot ever asked passengers if they wanted to take off. At no point did the pilot ask the passengers to take a boat on flying the aircraft, nor would we ever attempt to fly the aircraft without both engines working correctly, a spokesman said in a statement. The pilot attempted to use one engine to start the other engine. As his normal procedure, because he was aware that the passengers had already been considerably delayed due to a technical problem, the pilot asked the passengers if they would like to get off or remain on board while they started up the other engine
2: that makes a little more sense a
1: lot more sense yeah. so basically uh i think what happened here is that apparently the apu is probably not working right so they and they don't have an external source of power so they they have or somehow they got the one engine running started, and yeah. they were going to use that and do what we call a cross bleed start and probably at the gate and some because you have to use all that bleed air to start the other engine guess what you turn off the, the air, conditioning air conditioning system to the airplane because that uses bleed air as well. Well, we all know on a, in a hot climate, on a hot day, even in a normal, you know, like in the mad dog in the summertime in Atlanta or Charlotte, uh, when we're starting up the other engine and we're using all the bleed air to do so uh, for a few moments, all of a sudden That's the airplane when everyone's
2: sitting in the back and all of a sudden they're going. The it's not. Wor- the, and know, it's not it because
1: we're not we're, we're not trying to save fuel and save money. It's because we have to use all that bleed air to start the engine, and then of course as soon as the other engine started, the bleed air is flowing through. In fact, it gets cool pretty.
2: Pretty, yeah, pretty quickly quick. because started, now you
1: have both engines running. Give it a moment. Yeah. So I think what he did probably is say, look, it's you know, it's gonna get hot. Maybe he didn't say it exactly like this, because obviously we weren't there. But he thought these people, poor people have been already inconvenienced. I don't 40 want to hours. make them endure something that could yeah. be you know, not very comfortable and ask them that they would like to get off. And maybe there was a chance he thought that there was no way that the, he could get the other engine started. Maybe there was a, fit, you know what, I don't know.
2: Maybe uh, there was already, maybe there was some other technical issue going on. He right. wasn't sure and it was going to take a while and it was going to get hot. And
1: So I'm sure that, you know, the John Q public hears they're, this. They're sitting
2: there doing this. They're looking at yeah. their phone and then all they hear is, do you want to get off the plane? Because <laughs> we right. have a technical issue and, you know.
1: Yeah. And, and, and then that, then it that somehow a becomes telephone and that becomes, misheard. Uh, and, well, he doesn't know if the airplane's going to actually, you know, be able to take off.
0: Right.
2: Uh, come on. A 50 chance. Yeah,
1: really. Anyway, the uh, article continues that uh, the, a replacement aircraft was eventually flown in, mm-hmm. and the flight finally reached its destination Saturday evening, forty hours behind schedule. So, um, yeah, I thought, you know, when I first read the article I'm thinking uh, that can't be <laughs> I thought well that's kind of somebody maybe has a good sense of humor and thinks he's a comedian and you know is is, is trying to be funny or something but you know you, you wouldn't expect somebody a professional pilot to actually say something you know seriously like this right. yeah so. what do you think uh what do you think Nick
4: Well, it just goes to show that our job is not just flying airplanes. In fact, quite honestly, most of the time, captain's job is, uh, very little of it is actually involved in flying airplanes. A lot of it's involved with dealing with situations like this. And uh, unless you're a person that can explain themselves uh, clearly, uh, bearing in mind you're speaking to people with all sorts of backgrounds uh, who may not understand any of the technical information you're uh, are very keen to pass on, you do have to make absolutely certain that what you say is clearly understood by everybody so that this kind of misunderstanding, uh, which obviously caused uh, certainly the people who reported to the Plymouth uh, herald or whatever it was they obviously misunderstood entirely and were probably a bit concerned about what was uh going on so the answer is uh you you make sure that your announcements are absolutely clear and and unambiguous so that everybody knows what's going on um but uh no it sounds like it was a bit of a difficult situation it sounds like the passengers were uh doing an awful lot of complaining they'd even voted a spokesman forward to uh represent them and uh, you know
2: this poor pilot is probably it's just going um what how did this happen yeah
1: what uh exactly. what what airplane yeah. were they on when i was making this announcement <laughs> right.
2: but you know yeah, you're you're so true.
1: right captain nick i mean it, it, communication and we've talked we talk about that all the time is so important and, and the hard thing for us sometimes is that we know we have people who listen to this show so who knows something about aviation and so we can kind of get a little bit more technical with our explanations of what the mechanical issue is but on the other hand you know you risk like completely losing the people that you know have, have no idea that you have engines on the wing or on the tail and have no idea how they work and so they're i mean all, all you're saying to them is blah blah
8: blah blah blah, well,
1: it's, blah it's engine like the great
2: <laughs> uh, you know diagram i have of how the uh, airplane actually flies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's magic, magic, right? Air and magic, and that's yeah.
1: actually pretty accurate. Yeah, so. but uh, P-F-M. so you know, you hit, P-F-M. Go yeah. ahead, Dana.
2: PFM.
1: Yep. Actually, pure yeah.
5: freaking magic.
1: Pure freaking magic. You're right. So, um, so you know, we have to kind of straddle the you know going into enough detail that it satisfies most you know rational people and uh then you know and also uh satisfying the uh people that are a little bit more technically technically oriented but um, there's always going to be a percentage no matter how simple you make it or how complicated you make it that are just not going to end understand at all and mm-hmm. and that's usually when i make myself available to you know individually talk to somebody if they didn't understand what i was saying just to be, you know just to be sure but um so looks like this is a uh, another you know um too much about nothing, right? Kind of thing.
2: Sensationalized, yes. But
1: horror. it was fun. Horror. We, horror, horror, We got a chance to talk about it on the yes. show, and that's the important thing.
4: And then absolutely. But I'm just like you, Jeff. If I've got a time to. Uh, chat to the passengers, I'll actually stroll right the way around the aircraft uh, and say, look, I'm going to walk. I, I explain to the PA what the problem is. And then I say, look, I'm now going to walk around the aircraft. Ben, if you've got any additional questions and I can explain it more clearly to you, then please feel free to stop me. And then I walk around the aircraft grinning like a buffoon, <laughs> smiling at all the passengers. And
2: when they ask you a question, you go, I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay.
4: Yeah, because the question's usually, yeah. am I going to miss my connection? Oh, yeah. I'm going, yes. Like, I'm going to know uh, that. <laughs>
2: yes, you will. Where's baggage
4: claim? <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, where? What? Ter, what, what carousel where's, is my baggage? <laughs> Wait a
2: minute.
5: Where's my IPA? <laughs> the
0: important uh,
1: question. Yes. Okay. And speaking of, uh, a, go ahead, Dana.
5: I was going to say, and Captain Nick you have a very nice grin,
4: like that. Oh well, thank you. i course, you to take that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh speaking of uh what
4: news well
5: it's better than me walking down the aisle looking like a football player coming at the guys and feeling that they're being
4: threatened <clears throat> well that's probably yeah. a good way to keep them quiet <laughs>
2: yeah any questions <laughs> maybe so maybe. <laughs> any, <laughs> any questions, questions? <laughs>
4: yes. okay when finally. you put that big helmet on <laughs> and
1: finally yes. uh let's uh knock out this last piece of uh stuff in the feedback folder. I mean, I'm sorry, not the feedback, but the news folder. Uh, speaking of people that um, aren't very bright, a field, let's see, a pilot crashed his light aircraft after satellite navigation directed him to an airfield that, quote, does not appear to exist, accident investigators said. The 53-year-old man was attempting to fly a uh, to a landing strip in rural Abendeershire Or Aberdeenshire, 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 thank you, you. uh, which was listed on the database of his Garmin GPS navigation device, according to the Air Accidents Investigation Branch, in a report published on Friday. Now, this is not not an article from The Onion or any uh, satire satire magazine or anything. uh, This is real. It was actually the AAIB investigating. Upon reaching the destination, he could not see anywhere to land and lost control after... Conducting three orbits of the area at low altitude in search of the non-existent airfield. And of course, we all know fuel. <laughs> that if you if you orbit three times, you're going to lose gonna control. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, you've got to do you it. You Get three chances around, yeah, and then you go just in one pop. direction.
4: Then you've got to go around in the other way because I can't do more than three <laughs> turns in the same direction. So uh, the plane it's called or something. The plane, right. the plane plummeted
1: to the ground, striking a wall and flipping over. The pilot, who holds a U.S. flying license, there <laughs> well, you go. There is the problem. No. There the,
5: oh, <laughs> so. there's, there's an explanation right yeah. there. Yep. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Well, he's in the U.K. and he and has he's a just U.S. license. probably, probably and got just, in from a gumball machine. He's just following his GPS.
1: That's right. <laughs> uh, he and his passenger escaped from the crash uh, uninjured, except for his pride, probably.
2: And the aircraft.
1: Yeah, and the aircraft su- su- suffered substantial damage, which is the sad part a beautiful single-engine Mall MX. There's a photo in this article of this beautiful airplane, I guess, before it crashed. <laughs> now it's probably not recognizable. Yeah. Or, or similar. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see, their flight began around 40 miles away uh, in Angus uh, with an intended destination of a landing strip near Alford, which the AAIB said was not a recognized airfield. Accident investigators were told by Garmin that the location was not in the current database for its navigation devices. Uh, the AAIB report concluded the airfield the pilot was attempting to locate does not appear to exist. They probably said some more things, but they just didn't print it in the report.
2: Right? <laughs> <laughs>
4: Absolutely. Oh, boy. I wonder if he still got his license.
1: I don't uh, know. And I, just, I saw this and I went, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? This cannot be
2: true. It just reminds me. I can't remember what the commercial was actually for. It was here in the U.S. where um, a guy is like following his GPS and it says, turn right. And he just like turns right immediately into a storefront. And then it says in 500 feet, you know, like after the fact, <laughs> that's all I think of when I, read I always that.
1: think of um, the, uh, the show, the U uh, S version of the office. Uh-huh. When Michael Scott was in the car with, uh, I think, Dwight, and they were on some kind of a sales call, and he was using the GPS and kind of extolling the virtues of this modern technology, and they're driving along, and it says, you know, turn right. And, and he goes, well, no, no, you can't turn right here. You can, there's, there's a lake, you know. And he goes, nope, it says turn right. This thing's a smart thing. It drives right into a pond or something. You know, it's, it was funny.
4: Anyway. Well, if funny those things didn't happen for real, but they do. They
1: do. Apparently,
2: they do. And even Absolutely. to pilots. Yes. Were you? I mean, yeah. you
3: know.
1: That's the the very scary part of this, I think.
3: You have arrived, arrived at your destination. No
4: guarantee of intelligence.
1: That's true. Correct. That's true. So, Dana um, is is back with us, and uh, at the uh, beginning of the show here, we we're gonna we were gonna get a review uh, or um, uh, I don't know a recap of. Your day uh, spent at the uh, U.S. Air Force Museum in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So now that we have you, uh, we can hear you, and you're not breaking up. Let's give this another try.
5: Excellent. Let's try this. I, I know the audio won't be quite as good because I'm now on my hands-free, but that's okay. On my cell phone, at least I'm here. So, anyways, uh, left the hotel this morning, uh, bright and early, about eight thirty-five, eight forty in the morning. Got over to the so I uh, got over to the uh, National Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio, uh, courtesy of the local hotel here. They were very nice to give me a ride over there. And the gentleman that was actually the driver was very informative. He was a former military member and goes to the museum uh, several times a year. and was quite excited and got me very excited about going. So I uh, pulled in and uh, it's completely free to my surprise. Uh, completely uh, no no charge to walk through the door which is unusual for most museums uh, so even uh, even walking through the door the the, the feeling of, of the place is just everything revolved around aviation and more importantly not only aviation but the the service members of our uh, great country and, and what they've done to protect our liberties and freedoms in our country so it's very patriotic as it was very uh, very uh honorable experience for me. So the, the, the basically it's laid out in four different uh, um, venues. Uh, the first venue is the start of the aviation uh, world, going back to Orville and Wilbur Wright and started off with the first Wright Flyer and went through the beginning of the uh, aviation for the military and how they uh, continued to march from just the first Wright Flyer and, and actually used that aircraft to design in military service initially for, for uh, uh, training and uh, not only training, but surveillance. Uh, so they used that aircraft right up until uh, the most modern uh, technology. So each gallery, the first gallery being uh, all um, pre-war, World War II. Then they had the next gallery, which happens to uh, be World War II. And they went into all the different aircraft that were available. We, we talked about a couple of aircraft. Uh, um, I forget what uh, what Nick had there. Oh, my God. I'm getting old. I can't. My memory is going. Anyways, the beer that Nick has uh, is one of the aircraft that the. Uh, that
4: Spitfire. Were, do you remember?
5: Spitfire. Thank you. I can't. I have so many airplanes running through my head right now from everything I saw today. Uh, so anyway, I saw the Spitfire. Uh, saw so uh, uh, my favorite World War Two aircraft, which happens to be the B-17 bomber, um, we had a discussion several times, uh, several weeks back. I think we're talking about the RAF's bomber versus the the uh, 17. But, anyways, uh, interesting to learn the C-47. I always thought it was called a, a DC-3 even in the service, but no, it's a C-47. Um, and they had a lot of very rare uh, artifacts that were 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 um, found um post-war and were have been brought into the the air force museum as um donations from various countries and and it's really it was really nice to see so many uh, restored aircraft i thought when i went to the world war ii museum in new orleans that i had you know hit the pinnacle but uh, it was it was absolutely fantastic probably 40 to 50 um fully restored aircraft. Now, I didn't have time to read every single caption because I believe it would probably take three days at least if you read every single caption with every airplane and, and every display that they had there. So um, I knew I had about seven hours to walk through there. Uh, it took me until about 1230 just to get through World, world War Two. Then I went to uh, Korea they, and then the Cold War. So they had the Korea War and the Cold War kind of together. Then they and and they had uh, all the, the 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 jet age the beginning of the jet age they showed the uh, well set back World War II, the Messerschmitt uh, the first jet fighter in the world um then they showed all the technology that they gained from that and uh, started to show all the different military applications in the jet fighters and moving forward to I think the F four and and was uh, thinking of you guys uh, I saw the one forty one as well and uh, saw uh. Uh, plenty of the uh, Cold War, je- uh, the uh, the MiG-15, which was uh, the Russian version of the earliest uh, fighter that we had over here. And then um, went ahead and moved forward to the more modern technology, which is uh, the Cold War era uh, forward. And that's why I saw our, uh, great aircraft like the uh, F-14, the F-15, the F-16. Um, saw our, uh, the uh, the Blackbird, which is still, from what I know, is the long the the highest and the fastest airplane ever built by man, other uh, than the spacecraft. Um, that's SR seventy one. If anybody doesn't know what the Blackbird is, U uh, two. I mean, just onward and onward. And then finally, uh, they had another uh, gallery for rockets. Uh, the rockets. I, I didn't get very interested in those. Kind of walked through those, even though. You would think that uh, some people would, would enjoy those. I, I'm not a Rocket Man.
1: Rocket Man.
5: Yeah, there Sorry. you go. So, anyways, uh, I kind of led into that one. Uh, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, then ended up in the back gallery, which is the newest gallery, just opened up a year and a half ago or so. And that was uh, walk right in there, and there's a mock-up of the uh, space shuttle. You walk into first time I actually got to see the uh, space shuttle uh, cockpit. Took several photos of it, and I was reading a little caption about that, and that's two thousand over two thousand switches in the cockpit in the space shuttle. I thought on the Mad Dog we had a lot of switches. We have two thousand and
1: three, I think, in the Mad Dog. Two hundred and three.
5: Yeah, 203. No, 2,003. Uh, two thousand and three. So, so, anyways, two thousand and three each. Yeah, on each. Yes, on each side. Yes. Wow. So uh, we. How many fingers? Yeah, it, was, did you- it was amazing. <laughs> uh. Well, I'm not going to go there. Got to walk through um, the presidential, starting with the, all the way back to DC-6, I think is the first one they had, um, when they had Roosevelt. They have actually had the elevator extended down, so you can see how they brought him into the airplane, and stepped forward into the next generation, which was uh, Nixon's airplane, I believe, and then, uh, oh no, Eisenhower, excuse me, Eisenhower. And then step forward into, um, no, Eisenhower was the Connie, actually. Connie, so, and yet the gotcha. Eisenhower had the Connie, um, and the Connie, my God, that's, it was just unbelievable. Always had, you know, have seen the Connie from the outside had never stepped inside the Connie. Oh, what a beautiful airplane. Uh, cockpit was just uh, fantastic. Um, you look at that old technology, And here I am saying old technology uh, on on some of these old birds, you know, four engine uh, uh, turboprop, four engine props, and uh, they—they were uh, just—it's amazing the technology they they had, and you know, now we think it's old, but that back then it was state of the art. Um, The actually.
1: I'm sorry, Dana. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But uh, one of the airplanes I'd really like to see—I've not been to that uh, U.S. Air Force Museum—but uh, one of the airplanes that I'm really interested to see is the uh, XB-70 Valkyrie. And I was wondering, uh, did you get a chance to see that, or is that like in a different, um, a different part of the museum?
5: No, it, it's it's there. Um, I uh, actually, when you walk in, they have the Valkyrie uh, cafe which is oh. the food cafe. I didn't visit it, but, uh, back here in that section, I'm going for presidential, uh, and I'm going to step uh, one more section that we went to mm-hmm. uh, presidential. The next airplane that was there was uh, the actual airplane that, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as president after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And it is the actual airplane. Um, thousand I think was the sodium number on it. Um, when they, they flew back from Dallas, so got to walk walk through that aircraft too. Uh, absolutely amazing. Then on the other side uh, of that same gallery was the um, next generation. So the the Valkyrie, the X One, all of the space research, uh, the uh, first space capsule to ever orbit the Earth with the you know with the John Glenn and uh, with the, uh, the first. Uh, well, I'm sorry, it wasn't the first, it was the fifth uh, lunar mission. They had the space capsule, the actual space capsule there. So uh, it was just so much to take in in one day. I feel as though I missed three quarters of it, just wanting to get to all of it. They have uh, a movie theater as well with all, uh, uh, they have five different movies showing. I didn't get to view any of the movies that I wanted to see, um, but, you know, as always next time and I'm looking forward to coming back to Dayton because i tell you what if you've never been here you need to come here it's absolutely fantastic from an aviation an aviator's uh, point of view uh, it is uh, an unbelievable collection from a, uh, a person that respects and honors our military it's an it's an honor to be able to come and and pay respects and the two things that absolutely sent chills down my spine in addition to the aviation part of the uh, exhibits was the uh, holocaust exhibit because at the end of the world war ii of course they discovered all that and they have actually have one of the holocaust person war which is very few in the world exist anymore and then the uh um tribute that they had to Vietnam War and all of the suffering that was uh, that was held uh, beheld by most of our uh, aviators that got shot down over Vietnam. So, excellent, excellent
1: place. What, what was your what was your favorite um, airplane or aspect of the uh, of the museum?
5: You know, I, I always loved the B seventeen, um, but the SR seventy one can't you can't uh, you can't knock our, the technology the b2 was there too um so those are always high on my list i had i have never seen a b2 in person um and it's just an awe-inspiring piece of engineering that we created and uh, you know not we but uh, american ingenuity created and uh, those are some of my favorites of the day
4: very cool what well, are you going to find out bit bit mustang too. the uh Blackbird, uh, today. Yeah, we have a uh,
1: special Plain Tales episode uh, that uh, talks specifically to the uh, wonderful technology uh, with the uh, the Blackbird SR seventy one. So well, how
5: fitting yeah. that uh, that worked out perfectly. See, yeah. that was uh, that was uh, that was Destiny, yeah. yes. yes, exactly. It was destiny. I mean, and, and ironically, uh, I didn't know that you had done that on on uh, on Plain Tales. So. Just, uh, just a wonderful airplane. I, I've always admired it. Another place that has a blackbird, really nice blackbird on displays in Mobile, Alabama. You wouldn't believe it, but where they have the battleship, oh. uh, the USS Alabama, they have blackbird out there as well. Fantastic airplane. I yeah. just, it's, a, it's amazing to look at the airplane and know what it, what it did.
4: They only built thirty-two of them, so, and quite a few of them uh, have crashed. So uh, there aren't that many left. I got to see
1: one at the no, Smithsonian at the Udvar Hazy. Yeah. Um, That's the only place I've yeah. seen one. Me too.
2: Really
0: cool. Right?
5: Yeah. And if you compare, I mean, to compare, um, anybody's ever been to Pensacola, which is the Navy Museum, uh, which is on the same scale. It's probably about half the size of the Air Force Museum. And um, the Muga Hazy uh, is probably about one quarter of the size hmm. of the. Air Force Museum. Does it, give you does it
1: seem like uh, Dana? Does it seem like uh, that that location might lend itself to uh, an APG meetup sometime in the future?
5: I would absolutely encourage that. Oh, Excellent. okay. Because there's at least one hundred percent. It Three would be of us APG. that haven't
2: been there.
1: Right. So. I think Dana, right now on the present crew, is the only one that's been there.
2: So <laughs> the rest of us are, uh, yeah, you know, listening with envy. Uh, definitely need to get there. No, right.
5: Absolutely it's 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 and 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 when you when we you know if you set a, a meetup maybe right around the dayton air show might be a good good idea oh that's right they have when a big air dayton show sometimes
1: yeah sounds they like have uh,
5: a big air show so that would be
1: could be a plan could be a plan be you a never know plan. where we might have another meetup in the future so uh great well uh thank you for for uh talking to us dana about your uh adventure today and um Look forward to going to that museum myself sometime.
4: Yeah, that sounds like a fabulous place. Uh, and uh, I can't believe it's free, which is just brilliant. I know you guys pay for it in your tax dollars. Uh, and that if I went there, I'd, I wouldn't even have to do that. But it's so nice when those kind of things are laid on for you. And it sounds like a fantastic museum. Well, we'd probably you know, charge us something.
2: something that, yeah, just, just that. Well,
5: could. yeah, we, we would charge you. But, you know, some, something I want to add to that. Um, we can you know, the, the more, couple things I want to add to that is, number one, they have a lot of former military people there as guides, and they're more than happy to talk to you regarding um, any of their experiences, anything about the Air Force, anything about the history. Uh, so that was really nice. They're unpaid. And the other thing is, they, you know, they do have a donation box, so anybody that's listening to this, um, certainly when you're walking out, Um, yeah, our tax dollars may pay for it, but, uh, you know, there are certain programs that they have for kids and there were a lot of kids there. There was uh, an entire, uh, probably a whole squadron of Air Force folks came in for tour, and they were, were talking about uh, the different uh, different uh, fighters. So I, I think they use it as a learning platform to a certain extent, too. So there's a lot of other things, a lot of other activities, other than just being a, a guest that go on there. And, and uh, I, I left a very nice donation in the box as well today.
1: And so. we also have uh, the coffee fund at the. Uh, no, I'm just kidding.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
7: yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, great. I'm um, glad we got a chance to uh, hear from you, Dana, and you got your uh, issues sorted out there in uh, in Dayton, uh, the birthplace of aviation. Well, one place that claims to be the birthplace of aviation. <laughs> <laughs> so, here, I'll play it for you. <laughs> Incorrect. Yeah, North Carolina and Ohio have a very playful, uh, <laughs> to some people, and very serious um, argue, rivalry. Yeah. Rivalry, uh, yeah, regarding that.
5: Ah, but I, I did read today about that rivalry. As a matter of fact, oh, I did yes. spend all the time. And the reason why the the rights went over to Kill Hills, North Carolina, Kill Devil
2: Hills, Kitty
5: Kill Devil Hills. Okay, yeah. Kitty up. Hawk. Yes. The, the the reason why they went over there is they, they studied all the weather around the country as to which would be the most productive for their testing, and have the most consistent
2: wind. And guess where? Guess where it wasn't. Ohio.
1: So I'm thinking. I thought Steph would say something. And your point is? <laughs> yeah.
5: The point <laughs> is, yeah, is. But the aircraft was the aircraft was built in Ohio.
2: But where did the flight take place?
1: Okay. You know, this is not going to be resolved the, yeah, this episode where, where, of the Airline Pilot guy Show. <laughs> where,
5: did, where, did, where was the idea born? Was Where was all the research done?
2: Doesn't matter. Okay.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying. Uh, go. I'm going to call, call a truce uh, here, and we're going to move on to.
3: Captain. Incoming message.
1: Thank you. Your feedback, which is uh, undoubtedly the best part of the show. And well, except for the Plain Tales installment. But all right, uh, (laughs) let's let's start with Tom. Tom writes, Tom Seagraves, uh, outside of uh, Kansas City area. Would love to hear you guys talk this one over and speculate on what could have happened. Captain Nick, please don't let the fact that this was a Boeing get you sidetracked. As always, keep up the great work. And so he sent us a link to an article uh, from the Aviation Herald. It was an incident: uh, a WestJet Boeing Seven Thirty Seven over the Atlantic uh, fuel mystery uh, was was flying from Halifax to Glasgow, the uh, UK, Scotland, with 130 people on board, was en route when the crew noticed at their fur- first fuel checkpoint. But they were about 500 pounds of fuel below planned progression. At the ETOPS exit point, the crew found that they were 1,100 pounds below the planned fuel. The crew increased their fuel monitoring and entered the oceanic crossing, checking fuel flow, EGT, and fuel balance with all parameters appearing normal. A fuel leak was suspected, and the crew proceeded to shut the APU down. About 40 minutes later, the fuel seemed to have stabilized at about 800 pounds above the required minimum to continue to Glasgow. However, about 30 minutes prior to landing, the extra fuel started to disappear. The crew declared a pan, 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 and requested priority handling from ATC. The aircraft landed safely in Glasgow. However, the 800 pounds extra fuel had all disappeared. Emergency services checked the aircraft for leaks but didn't find any. The Canadian TSB reported the operator is investigating the accident. So what happened here? And uh, uh, we have some questions for our long-haul expert, uh, Captain Nick. Uh, Now, I know you don't fly something as as small uh, as the 737, uh, but um, is is it a requirement to have the APU running on an airplane, or is it only for the 737 that it's required because of electrical generators, or do you know?
4: Well, it's not a requirement on my aircraft, Jeff. So um, we, we have to have a serviceable one, and the uh, it has to be um, quite frequently checked. At least it's, it's about once a month. They actually have to do a start-up at altitude just to confirm it would be available if it was required and is capable of starting at altitude because uh, it's obviously harder up there than it would be to start at the sea level when it's sitting on the ground as we do every day. Um, so we don't need to run it all the time. So, but I, I, the 737, I guess, that needs that extra generator just in case they do lose an engine so they don't lose something vital that they would need to, uh, you know, to be able to do a long transit. Um, So, you know, uh, uh, Colonel Jeff might be able to answer this one if he uh, replies to us. That'd be great. Um, But, and the only other thing I noticed there that, um, that doesn't ring right is that, uh, they say that, that at the ETOPS exit point, they found they were 1,100 below the planned fuel, uh, and they increased their fuel monitoring and entered the oceanic crossing. Um, well, no, no, they would have to be at the ETOPS entry point, oh, not yeah. exit right. point. Yeah. If they're I about was to wondering about that. Yeah, I think yeah, it was just a, a, mis, a
1: miswriting or whatever typo yeah, there. Exactly right.
4: But uh, I did actually read this in the Herald, and there were quite a few um, comments from uh, 737 guys, who uh, most of whom were saying the fuel totalizers aren't that accurate on the 737, uh, and it's quite common to get uh, a reasonably large discrepancy. Uh, and uh, the, the amounts that the crew were talking about did not exceed seem to be excessive. So I don't know whether it was a case of perhaps a slightly inexperienced crew uh, overreacting, or perhaps they didn't have a great deal of reserves on board. Don't know that situation. Um, But considering that it appears that the aircraft was serviceable uh, after an inspection, it does seem...
1: It did the uh,
2: return flight, it sounds like.
4: Yeah, I I was thinking the same thing. You know, of
1: course, every airplane has different Fuel flow and sure. requirements uh, for fuel, and obviously on a on an Airbus three hundred and thirty or three hundred and forty, the amounts of fuel that we're talking about are much larger. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I've never flown the seven hundred and thirty-seven, but I'm when I read this, I'm thinking, well, so what? It was down five hundred pounds. I mean, Dana and I know that it's not unusual at all for us to do a check of our fuel at top of climb or at a certain checkpoint, and it might be four or five hundred pounds. Below what of we were planned to have, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're in an urgent situation. I mean, it may mean that that uh, thing you know you were on the ground a little bit longer than you had expected, or you know, some kind of a takeoff delay, or whatever. So it's it's not necessarily well, a bad thing.
5: You know, you know what I what first comes to mind for me is uh, you know the winds at at uh, a at whatever flight they happen to be at are predicted winds. They're not always exact. Or in or the you know what type of speed are they holding? Are they holding a little extra, a little extra speed? And, you know they they are they planned at seven six or seven seven. They going seven eight or seven because they want to get home or get to the overnight whatever. Um, you know there are other reasons why you're consuming more fuel than normal.
1: Although, I think that Captain Nick would say that uh, if you're flying the uh, North Atlantic, especially on the track system, you really can't <laughs> do what we do, Dana, on that last flight and bump it up, you just, know, a little bit yeah. faster, you know, to get <laughs> home earlier. Know because, if we just go yeah, you have to be like pretty, pretty close to what you said, the project or whatever you said you were going to be flying. Is that correct, uh, Captain Nick?
4: Uh, oh, absolutely! Yeah, that—that's laid in uh, in slabs of stone. You can't change no. your speed. It can't change your amplitude, unless you've done a negotiation. It's very unlikely that they're going to let you. Certainly, change your speed, uh, because you know you've got guys uh, at the minimum ma- the minimum distance ahead and behind you, and you best not messing about with your speed. They'll soon spot it because you'll uh, you're reporting through your reporting um, times. They'll work out that you're either creepy up on the guy ahead or ca- the guy behind you is catching up, and they'll uh, want to know why. So they, they do move on to that very closely. But
1: it is a good point that he makes about the winds. You know, as you as he mentions, the winds are just kind of a educated guess. And, sure.
4: Well, yeah. are, and like you said, there's all kinds of – I would expect the crew to have worked out if mm-hmm. their winds were stronger because they've yeah. got their predicted times there, and if they're continually losing time, then, they'll, then they will work out that that's the reason that they're sure. down on fuel. At least – any smart crew. In my
1: doesn't. mind, then, that can, it kind of keeps working back, circling back around to the crew. And perhaps they were, as you mentioned, a little bit in, inexperienced and maybe blow blew this out of proportion or something.
2: Well, and, and the thing that I keep thinking of is, at least in general aviation aircraft, there's only really one time that your fuel gauges are accurate. And it's when it's empty.
1: And that's so. not when you want to find out.
5: Exactly. I would argue it, it, it's
2: actually when it's full, too because you, you know the tanks are full yeah as long as you've checked and verified in that in full, and then it also reads full afterwards yeah. yes you have to look yeah. at both of those things yes I w-
5: but in between there yeah i would absolutely agree with you. stuff that that's the only time hmm.
4: so tom that's what we think of this here's one just um, <laughs> mix um which is that uh, the 330 that i fly um when we get to the end of our atlantic crossing we uh were to quite open to a reduced contingency fuel plan, which means that uh, we're going to be landing with a relatively low reserve. Um, so we have a decision point, uh, and it's uh, on the map. And if you get to that point with a certain fuel, you're then permitted to carry on to your destination. If you're below that, then you should consider diverting uh, en route, go to somewhere a little closer and top up. Now, uh, the Airbus has a tendency, when the trim tank fuel is feeding forwards, uh, for the total uh, fuel to uh, unexpectedly drop half a tonne. And it can put you sometimes just below that uh, decision point fuel, but the experienced operators will go, as uh, soon as that trim tank's fed, I know I'm going to recover that half ton, so I, I won't be concerned. Um, so you know that's something you just hang on to. But um, you know, it's uh, if perhaps on the seven thirty-seven, if these guys uh, just had a bit of an odd airplane or something that was a bit weird, then you know that that'd be different. Yes, you
5: know that 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 brings up a very important point, Nick. Um, You know, you you talk about trimming. The 737 doesn't have the ability to move fuel around. It's just in the wings. Um, And so I'm I'm wondering, maybe they had, you know, the rampers load the bags in a certain way, generally speaking. um, And they have to keep the CG within limit. If they had a little bit more forward and aft CG, they may have not been exactly where they thought that they were in trim and thus were, you know, were not as efficient. As was planned, and they could have been burning more fuel that way, as well as you know maybe the APU is a requirement for their ETOPS you know certification. You know that's something I, I don't know, uh, but that well, may be required with the seven three.
4: Yeah, I I believe it is a requirement for the seven three. I don't think they they started the APU or just left it on by accident. So yeah, I think uh, there was
1: something in the in the comments about the fact that uh, you have to have like three uh, electrical generators or something like that going at the same. time. I don't know.
4: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the case, but not for us. Um, oh. So it's, it's it's just an interesting one. Um, I don't know, I suppose we'll ever find out the real reason unless you can get the uh, pilot on the show one day. We'll see if we can do that.
2: Yeah, we'll just. Do you know it who it was? WestJet. Some. <laughs>
1: okay, yeah, we'll just give him a call. Yeah, yeah Who is that guy?
2: <laughs> we'll just call up WestJet. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll HR will get in touch with oh, their okay. HR. And-
1: yeah. That'll happen.
4: Well, works. certainly, uh, I'd appreciate it if Colonel Jeff would uh, just write in with his thoughts. That'd be nice.
1: Yeah, that's true because he flies that type. Now I don't know if he does any E-tops stuff with it, yeah. but
4: uh, no. I mean the seven three really isn't a common ETOPS airplane. It doesn't usually go across the Atlantic. They no.
1: take to Hawaii recently. a fair amount. Yeah, they're starting to use them more and more, which you know is a sad, sad <laughs> situation. I think it's not a an airplane crazy. design to do that. Yeah.
4: I don't um, think so it's oh. m- maybe just a, you know a crew uh, on, on doing what is relatively a relatively new procedure a long way without a lot of fuel at the other end just getting a little bit nervous and deciding to dive out. yeah all right
1: well uh, Tom hopefully that uh, answered your question thank you for uh, uh, sending it in and allowing us to talk about it Jeff Swanson wrote in and said I work part-time on a ramp servicing Acme Airlines most of the planes we see are MD-90s and SkyWest regionals. My question is, do the aircraft have a regular cycle for cosmetic repairs? Many of the planes that come in are cosmetically in rough shape, uh, in, uh, in other words, exterior plate, seats, carpets, etc. I realize that the paint and interiors have no impact on the plane's safe operation, but the perception is that the planes need some TLC. Or is the MD-90 close enough to retirement that it isn't worth the cost of painting the aircraft? I'm assuming that is a very costly paint job. Thanks, and keep up the great podcast, Jeff in Arizona. And I uh, – well, ironically, uh, the the 90 is actually going to be sticking around longer than the 88. It's newer than the 88. Um, But I have noticed, and I think that, Dana, you'd probably agree with me, lately it seems that a lot of the uh, uh, jets in our fleet are showing some signs of exterior paint wear. Now, I'm not sure if that's – if they're purposely – delaying putting them in the paint shop to get them repainted because they perhaps are thinking about doing yet another livery change, change. and yeah. you know making the airplanes well they've got to
2: distinguish themselves from um, other yeah. countries yeah large
4: well area.
1: go ahead nick you're kind of breaking up
4: Oh, sorry uh you're going to put red tails on me with acme red written on it
1: yeah, I think that that's one of the designs. Another one, um, yeah, with the, with the Acme logo, um, but, uh, in, in blue. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know what. Uh, I really don't know what's going on. But it's it's funny uh, for for many years uh, at this great company that I work for. It seems like every time there was a change of administration, then that person would come in, and then mm-hmm. the the design of the logo and the and the colors and everything else paint. and the paint job just changes and uh, just like it, well, it's,
5: our, our our the fighting in customer service agent. Uniforms are changing, so I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if that was something in the pipeline.
1: Could be, because uh, it's kind of an odd color that they've chosen uh, with the new flight attendant uniforms. It's kind of a like purple? purple color. yeah, And it's probably called something other than purple, but it looks like purple to me. And I'm thinking, well, where, where,
2: where like are they? the purple that our work uses, like aubergine.
1: Yeah, something like that. A, it can't a just French, be purple. A French eggplant color. Uh, but, but I'm thinking, why did they choose that color? Because you look at our our livery and and uh, all the colors of our company and and that purple color is not in it so i'm not sure exactly what's going on here but uh, yes uh, the paint jobs are expensive uh and but as you mentioned jeff uh perception is important and that's why more than you'll see the exteriors of the airplane being uh, spiffied up, you'll see the interiors um, much more often updated and upgraded and looking new. And you know what? Most people when they get off on an airplane, they never even look at the outside of the airplane. Oh. They look at they see what the inside looks like and the new, you know, cool LED lighting and you know the nice leather seats and that kind of thing. That's what they look at. And if everything's the looking new, yeah. It, yeah. Everything's looking new and spiffy. They're thinking this is a safe airplane. Yep. And. Well, uh,
5: the other thing I was going to say, Jeff, is that, you know, it was what about when, when did the uh, Acme and Acme North merger? That was what? Oh, nine, oh, 2010. Something so like the paint that. jobs. <clears throat> yeah. The, so the paint jobs are starting to get a little older mm-hmm. and thus they're going to show a little more wear and tear. You know, if, if they bring them in and polish them up and give them a bath. Uh, you know, it will probably look a whole lot better, but so yeah. uh, you know, it's just the cycle of of how old or how oldish the paint is getting is probably part of part of the. What he's asking,
1: and, 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 as well. and Jeff makes a very good point because you know he he works with airplanes and he knows that deep down, it doesn't matter what the paint on the outside looks like, and it doesn't matter what the you know leather seats look like and the LED lights look like inside. It's really what's below all that that yep. people can't see that uh, is important. Exactly. Did you just pull Not off just, a Band-Aid or something there, uh, Dana? It sounded
2: paint, like waxing going <laughs> painful.
1: We do have a mute a mute feature. There you go. <laughs> that
4: startled me. I'm like what? Yeah. What is that? How can you mute with those huge fingers? Um, now just a point here from uh, the chat room. On
5: this very small phone, it's right next to the hang up, so I'm having
4: to be careful. <laughs> be careful yeah. these
5: very large fingers
4: uh ssro 787 uh, is obviously an experienced man on this kind of thing says uh ap operation depends upon your operational approval uh needs to be run uh and this bit has got me a little bit per 737 ng cmp not sure what that is but basically i think he is uh, saying that um if you're outside 60 minutes uh from an adequate alternate. And obviously uh, ETOPS approval um, is initially like 60 minutes, which isn't, uh, it means you're going to be quite close to uh, uh, lots of en route diversions. And as you, uh, your airline increases in experience and uh, you have proven uh, engineering uh, and serviceability of, sort of track record, then that approval goes out uh, further and further and further. Um, so uh, he said, uh, you, um, Probably need to run it unless approval otherwise is guaranteed. Taking into account liability, etc. So uh, they're probably working their way up to a larger Etops limit. Until they do that, every time they're outside sixty minutes, they've got to run the APU. So that's what it appears to me. So are
1: these people uh, that are actually in our chat room, our live chat room, Nick. Wow, I yeah. didn't really. Yeah, I'm, you didn't
4: I'm, read that <laughs> one. That was it was a little I ways don't know back. But seven eight seven is one really? of the pilots.
1: Really? Wow. I thought maybe that was from the Aviation Herald uh, it's comments. Right, it's
2: right there. I was reading along Oh, nice. With Nick. Very cool. I, I read it. I didn't know what it meant, so I <clears> moved <throat> on. I'm sorry. SS Arrow 787. Very cool. Uh, there
4: you
2: go. Fortunately, Nick spotted it and could explain it better than I was ever going to do. So.
1: Good spot there, Nick. And thank well, you. Thank you uh, <laughs> let's see. I guess I need to scroll up to see who this is that you're all SS talking about. SS Arrow
4: 787.
1: About. Okay. Up more. Up more? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Up, 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 I missed it. Well, I'm running out of trackpad here. I can't go much further.
2: Too
1: far. Okay, too far. Well, that's all right. I'll take your word for it. SS arrow 8675309. Oh now I've I've covered up the chat room window, <laughs> sorry. Okay. Well that was fun. Um, let's see. Let's continue. How about some audio feedback?
2: Yes.
1: All right. Let's do it. I don't hear anything. No. (laughs) There's like a little crackle of (laughs) static. Yeah. And then, nada. Why am I not hearing that? Oh, I bet. Oh, hang
7: on. It's probably the volume. So that is flight simming. Okay. I've been an avid flight simmer for many years now, but I really stepped up my game in the last few years. Paul, you're going to have to start from the beginning. We weren't, we weren't hearing you, so can you try that again? Hello to the APG crew and to the community. This is Paul, Newark-based aircraft technician. The topic I want to discuss on his feedback is something that has been brought up a few times in the last few months, but it was discussed in some detail in the last episode, and that is flight simming. I've been an avid flight simmer for many years now but I really stepped up my game in the last few years with the purchase of a high-performance computer that allows me to run at the highest possible settings, which in turn, it performs with incredible attention to detail, both in aircraft modeling and scenery. From the very beginning, the 757 has been my favorite airplane. I have always had a love affair for that airplane since my childhood. Perhaps because it was the first plane I remember flying on my first trip back to Portugal since having immigrated to the United States. So it was only fitting that my first payware aircraft was a 757. It became the one and only airplane that I would fly. I couldn't possibly think of flying anything else. I loved everything about it, the sounds, the aesthetics of the cockpit, the way it flew. It was my baby. Fast forward a few months ago, while browsing a flight simming website. It was noted that the Airbus A320 was the most flown aircraft amongst flight uh, flight simmers. While I was not surprised, I couldn't believe that so many flight simmers were wasting their time with this European rubbish. Around the same time, that very own A320 went on sale, and for the sheer satisfaction of comparing its inferiority to my beloved 757, I decided to purchase it. After having flown the A320 now for a few weeks, and just as I suspected, I learned just what a piece of technological marvel this airplane is to fly. I absolutely love flying this airplane. Its simulated fly-by-wire makes it such a joy to hand-fly it. I have spent many hours learning the differences between the Boeing logic and the Airbus logic. And the one area I'm very intrigued by is the approach phase activation. And this is where my new best friend, Captain Nick, comes in. From the bit of research I've done, I believe it's a way to control airspeed solely based on flap settings. But I was hoping Captain Nick can take a few moments to describe the functionality of the approach phase mode, when does he actually activate it, and if there are instances when you don't activate it at all. In other words, we simmers want to mimic real-life pilots as much as we can, And we would appreciate if Captain Nick would teach us all the proper procedure for the approach phase activation. Now, before I trade in my snap-on tools for King Dick tools, I just want to reaffirm that the 757 will always be my baby. But as I sit here with my right hand on the side stick, anxiously awaiting Captain Nick's response, I just have three words to say to all. Retard, retard, retard.
1: Thank you, Paul, for that. And uh, Nick, are you there? Do you want to try to tackle this uh, mode—that the secret mode that he was talking about?
4: Yeah, yeah, it's a very secret mode. Actually, <laughs> you have to—you have to uh, be part of the AirPress fraternity to do it. So, I, I want all you Boeing blokes now to put your fingers in your ear because you're not allowed to know this. Okay. So um, uh, the approach mode. Uh, it yeah, it confused me a little bit. Uh, when i first started flying the airplane but it's actually a very simple concept um, as it turns out it's just very poorly explained in the manuals um uh, you're quite right when you say it uh, changes the speed target for the auto thrust uh, and i'll kind of just run through that um first thing about when when we set it um usual thing for me is uh, i'll definitely uh, activate the approach mode approaching a hold um, because uh, that will automatically pull my speed back to green dot. Uh, and that is our sort of mean drag speed and holding speed, anything, any kind of speed you're going to drift around at uh, uh, when you don't want to consume a lot of fuel and you don't have a, a, an air traffic speed target to fly because usually it's like 250 knots below 10. But as you go into the hold, you're going to reduce the holding speed or as some air traffickers sometimes call it, minimum clean. So uh, as soon as you activate the approach phase, the aircraft automatically reduces a green dot, which is your minimum clean speed. Now, um, at some point, you're going to then leave the hold and start the approach, and you'll usually be given a speed uh, to fly at, um, and if it's below green dot, uh, that minimum clean speed, uh, then... I put the first stage of flap out, flap one, and uh, the aircraft will then automatically slow down to S speed, which is the next speed target below green dot. And uh, if air traffic want me to fly something slightly faster, then I'll manually select that. Um, if uh, if it's slower than S speed, then I'll put down the next stage of flap, and it will go down to F speed. Uh, and uh, it'll, it'll reach that target, and it'll just sit there at, at F speed. Um, so if you've given no air traffic restrictions, uh, as you continue to configure the aircraft, uh, when you get to flap three, it'll reduce to the next F speed. When you get to flat full, then uh, it'll go down to your uh, V ref, it's a magenta triangle that'll appear and that's the target speed uh, for actually doing uh, your approach and landing. Uh, except that, of course, that is modified by uh, mini ground speed, which we have covered in past uh, episodes, but is just a function of uh, the amount of heads, headwind you've got. It just keeps your ground speed um, up a little bit so you don't stagger down the approach very slowly on the ground and just slow over up behind you. It keeps the aircraft motoring along at a comfortable speed, and it slowly bleeds off to, to ref as you get into the final stages of the approach and landing. Um, when, what happens if you don't activate the approach phase? Well, uh, you can't not activate it because if you get to uh, the pseudo-deceleration waypoint, which is where the aircraft computers have decided that in order to complete your approach, you're going to have to start slowing down at this point, and it'll put a little marker up on your uh, navigation display. Uh, if you get to that point, it'll do it for you. Uh, in case you forget. Uh, And also, if you uh, get inside 15 miles and because you're not on the uh, flying managed navigation, you're using headings, instead doing it manually, within 15 miles, again, it'll just do it for you, saying, oh, you've obviously forgotten to do this. I'm now going to put the approach mode in. Um, That's really it. Uh, If you don't have the approach mode in, there's a few other things you won't have. For example, uh, on a a approach, you won't get your vertical guidance. But other than that, there's very little to it. So I hope that helps you. By the way, what I tend to do is usually in the descent, us a, uh, um, a, a speed target to hit. Um, certainly in going to Heathrow nowadays, that happens even further and further out as we our speeds are juggled so that we get sequenced in. Uh, as soon as we select that speed, then uh, I can activate the approach phase at any point because uh, the speed target isn't going to change. I've selected it and take control of it myself. So activating the approach phase, uh, although uh, it will, within the logic, set the new target, it won't actually, the aircraft won't decelerate to it back to the aircraft. If I take it myself, it goes to a blue triangle and I can set that speed anywhere I want. If I were to push my speed selector in and give it back to the aircraft, it would go to a magenta target. And if I've already activated the approach phase, it will, like I said, it'll go to green dot. So that's it really. When you start flying this, you've just got to learn those tricks that it does. And, uh, you know, make sure you know what the aircraft's going to be doing uh, at the next phase of flight. So, to
2: so, Nick, what I've learned from this is that Airbus really wants you to know your primary colors, your shapes, your numbers, and your letters. Yes. So it's a well, little bit like the Sesame enough. Street of aviation.
4: I, I think <laughs> Boeing have exactly the same sort of system, all their funny, funny colors on their screen. So I think you're fine with, with probably. In fact,
5: well, the Airbus… What did you say, Dana? The Airbus is it, it was devised for the least common denominator third world countries. That was the original design, so it was made to be like a, a coloring book for, for with crayons and, and, and for kids. So that's <laughs> gotcha. uh, that's what that's what the Airbus was designed. I how was designed. I think
1: you might be exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I <laughs> am, I am. I just, you know. <laughs> I was being facetious. <laughs> very, uh, very
4: funny. Yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> very I'm funny. just exaggerating. I'm just exaggerating. Okay. Uh-huh.
4: Uh-huh. <laughs> just take uh. a look at a Boeing uh, nav display uh, one day, and you'll find it full of all sorts of uh, very pretty colored things as well.
1: That seems mesmerizing. I don't know, I'd probably crash an airplane if I had green to look at all those and colors. and
2: yellow and magenta and blue <laughs> you
4: triangles.
7: Got,
4: you, you've got uh, all- monochrome displays, Jeff?
1: No, we have colors too, but we don't have all those yeah. fancy yellow triangles and blue triangles and- Green and dots. Green dots and stuff. It's
4: It's part of your ATPL exam when I did it, and that was 22 years ago, was to know the colors uh, of what they meant. <laughs> I, I know green, I, green
1: means I go. I my head and go. Red means green stop. means go. No, yellow okay. is like you know go faster. Yeah, yeah. something well, like that. <laughs> well, now we're, of course we're just pulling your leg. Uh, very very interesting discussion about this uh, approach mode. Sounds pretty complicated actually, even though we're making it sound like it's very simple. But
4: well, it, it, to be absolutely blunt, if you took a guy who uh, really um, just wasn't interested in maintaining speeds at all. And he just went into, into uh, uh, auto thrust and activated the approach mode. If he paid no more attention to speed, the aircraft would look after it for you. And as he wanted to put more flap out, the aircraft would automatically slow so that he could put the next stage of flap out without over speeding and it would never go beneath, beneath the minimum safe speed for that flap setting. So it's it's, I hate to say it, foolproof. So even Dana could probably cope
2: with that. Oh. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Just <getting> learned,
5: right?
1: <laughs> Nothing is completely well, foolproof. Well, as I said,
5: me, me for the lowest common denominator, as he.
1: You know, speaking of this, um, thank you, Paul, for uh, sending the audio feedback. And uh, you talked about flight sim con and i saw somebody was tweeting about it uh and and had uh, had done some video and i wish that i'd remembered to uh write all that information down but uh this person was getting on an airplane and i am not sure if he's somebody in the apg community or not no
2: i know what you're talking about and i don't remember who that was yeah and, and he was getting on an I airplane he that,
1: was kind of yeah. giving a um a, a like narrative airplane, of, of yeah. you know he was looking out the window and at the wings and it was actually pretty yeah. accurate what he was describing what with the Airplane was doing and etc. and he was heading over to Bradley uh, International for the flight sim con. and We also got some feedback from Dan King. He said, "It's Dan, former Eastern Airlines employee and longtime supporter of the show via Patreon. Thank you, Thank Dan. You, yeah. We do appreciate that. I'm, uh, you know, Thank that deserves you. a a bell." Um, I'm writing to tell you that APG syndrome is spreading in the flight simulation community. Last weekend, I attended Flight SimCon that was held in the Sheraton Hotel at KBDL on June 10th and 11th. I was proudly wearing my APG t-shirt and was approached by a number of other attendees who said that they were fans of the show. I also had several people ask what sit back, relax electronic devices powered on meant. And, of course, I told them. Keep up the great show, and he also sent in a uh, a picture that I don't think I've actually looked at here. So let me let me look at this um, JPEG that he sent me, and uh, looks like he is in front. Oh, look at that! What a good looking T-shirt he has! It's the uh, I can get it here. Acme uh, logo, a nice black uh, with white uh, um, print, and he's standing in front of the Flight SimCon 2017. Uh, uh, sign at the Sheraton Hotel and oh I recognize that that's like in the lobby area of, uh, I've been in that hotel several times and uh, it looks like a you know that that's something that we sh- maybe we should go to sometime although I'm not a flight simmer myself but uh, it's kind of cool to know that uh, people recognized your t-shirt and we're also listeners of the show so if you're listening right now um, you know, thanks for, uh, uh, for being there and thanks for listening to the show. And, uh, you know, that, that's cool. Appreciate that. All right. So, you know, I had planned to actually talk about this uh, piece of feedback at the, at the end, because we just received this, um, literally, I think today, the 15th is today, the 15th
2: Today is the, the uh, sixteenth. Fifteenth, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is the fifteenth. Yeah, okay. yep.
1: So, uh, thank you, Dan. But not here. It's not. It's the sixteenth. Ah, uh, shut uh, up. Yeah, those of you in the future don't. Count. Yeah, they're always ahead of us, aren't I they? I know.
2: Typical <laughs> <Spickle. laughs> Americans okay. lagging behind.
1: Well, speaking of somebody way ahead of us, how about those folks over down under? Like this guy, who you'll recognize.
0: Hello, Captain Jeff. Captain Nick. Dr. Steph and soon to be Captain Dana it's Glenn here from New Zealand with we'll some more feedback uh, ATC privatisation yeah it's um, yeah it's not a, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know what you guys sure what you guys think but from what I can see it's just going to be a, it's going to be a train wreck I've uh, read a fair bit of, of stuff about it and it's just going to be um, everyone's going to end up paying more the island's going to pay more GA is going to pay more the taxpayer won't get a good deal out of this I'm really sure that Taxes won't actually go down because of this it's just it's just wrong it's, I mean not of in New Zealand obviously in, I don't even know in the pilot so it doesn't fit us of course except maybe we, we want to fly to America and then of course house will just charge us more for flying to America but well long, long. Long on rhetoric, short on detail. into too political. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about all this whole thing. I think, as I said, it's just going to be a disaster. It's just not going to work. It's a bit like uh, when Ronald uh, Reagan governed all the air traffic control unions. I know that was a bit of a not too good either. So anyway, glad to hear what. You- let me be know know what you guys think. Blue tail, blue sky, blue skies, tailwinds, and unlimited IPAs. Glenn out.
1: Green tail? What?
2: Green dots. Green dots. Sorry. Okay. Yellow
1: know. triangles. <laughs> now, thank you, Glenn, for uh, posing the question about uh, ATC privatization. And uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really on board with all the arguments for it. Actually. Um, And you know every country is different, Mm -hmm. but I do really think that um, the the people that are going to be affected most are general aviation. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I think GA is really worried about it, and rightfully so, because of potential fees associated with it. And I mean, you know, just talking to people around the world who are general aviation pilots, we really have it good here because there's aviation is going to be expensive no matter how you cut it but we don't have a lot of the other associated fees you know we don't have fees to use airspace to land at airports other than you know a ramp fee perhaps but you don't get charged per landing or per approach which does happen in some other countries with private atc or, or pseudo private
1: right so that could have a, a negative so impact it could have as a far really as really
2: negative impact because and, and you know just like we've talked about as it applies more to the airline world we're struggling for pilots who have 1500 hours now to meet minimum requirements to fill um pilot spots that are being vacated by people who are retiring um and if fees go up that's going to only continue to impact that more and yeah i think that could just be a big snowball and problem
1: yeah so, i we've believe had a break
4: right. i'm sorry We've had uh, privatized air traffic in the UK for a long time.
1: And has that had any negative Im- – you know, general aviation was never quite like it has been here in, in this country. Uh, but has it had any positive or negative effect on general aviation there? Hello?
4: Sorry, you just dropped out for a
1: second.
6: Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> no, it's uh, –
4: it hasn't had any positive or negative. In uh, fact, if anything, uh, air traffic has continued to improve and continued continue to innovate. Um, you know, just this, uh, the all, all the things that Adam Spink was talking about in his interview uh, not long ago about, uh, you know, reducing um uh, distances between uh, landings at Heathrow because of the new technology they've introduced. All that has happened uh, after privatisation. So it's uh, not been a significant problem. And uh, in the UK, uh, individual airports have uh, always charged for landings and uh, navigation fees if we are going to make approaches and that sort of thing. And That's just to cover their, their costs. But if you're talking about uh, air traffic control, centers that are providing you a service between uh, airfields. Air There's no charge for that, and there never has been, and there isn't now. So uh, I-, I would love to uh, get Adam back on the show at some point, or on the show at some point if we could. It, it would be an interesting uh, topic to discuss. So,
1: so do you think that the, the people that are um, stridently against privatization here in the country are just wrong, or they misunderstand um what could happen or, I mean?
4: No, I, I think it d- entirely depends on on how it's introduced and uh, what the objective of the people that take over the air traffic control companies are. In the UK, uh, it's owned by a conglomeration of a number of airlines and a few private investors. Uh, and uh, as far as I know, they, they don't run it for a profit necessarily. They just run it as a service. Uh, so, um, you know, they obviously do charge. Uh, And I I suspect they may take some profit off it. But that's not the prime objective, it seems. It it, it seems to be run very safely. Mind you, it's still under uh, all the sort of government controls that keep it safe. They're not allowed to do anything with it. that hasn't been authorized by the Civil Aviation Authority. But, uh, you know, it seems to work very well here if it was introduced under a different... System in another country where individuals were allowed to uh, hike up navigation fees to make a profit out of it, then that obviously would be something that would not be favorable.
7: Sure.
2: And I mean, you know, anything comes with a cost just because it's government run right now doesn't mean that there's no cost associated for it. It's just no cost, additional cost to the end user beyond what taxpayers pay into it at the present time. And I think that's where People are concerned and, you know, it shifts the cost from potentially everyone sharing it to some extent to, you know, um, perhaps uh, the the percentage or, or balance would be a little bit higher for those who are using it for general aviation purposes. And I think that's the concern. Now, not to say that it would happen that way and not to say that there wouldn't potentially be some significant, um, you know, potential for improvement if you turn it over to private companies, private corporations, you know, there's a lot more room for imagination and ingenuity. I don't think the system as it is now here in the US, there's much, you know, that anyone really complains about. I think that's oftentimes cited as an example of government that actually works well. Yeah.
4: <clears throat> I think <laughs> so. it is interesting though that your entire population pay for a service is only used by a tiny percentage
2: but a lot of people fly on commercial aircraft and you know just because they're not the actual pilot doesn't mean that they're not using the services indirectly
1: that is a valid point i mean well, i i could see the arguments of both sides you know mm-hmm. where you know you're you're the people that are actually using the system including, yeah i can
2: see i can see it both ways don't get don't get me wrong there yeah. um but but
1: i just, do see some you know for, for some it's just kind of one of the concern nice as well.
2: things here right now yeah. one of the really one of the reasons why ga AV, you know general aviation is so great in the US and America is because it doesn't have those associated costs to the end well, user so
5: yeah well it, in, in the bottom line is, is it's going to cost more for general aviation because you're going to get a bill in the mail right. that's going to be for your services that we use or it's going to be billed to the flight school you know why do you think a lot of the a lot of countries send their students to the United States to, yep. learn, to learn how to fly? It's because it's far less expensive to, to do it here in the States than it is in, in their own countries. It's a fee-for-use f- fee system. So I can understand that. I can also understand, you know, the argument, you know, not everybody should be paying for the use of the system. Uh, but it is, it is, you know, it is a national air traffic control system. So it, in it's interstate commerce. So it does actually affect everybody in the country because even if you're not using the service directly you are indeed using the service in some way whether you shop at uh, at amazon or, or or buy something from from some on you know uh, uh um what's the name of that the ebay mm-hmm. um you know anything like that you know there is the use of the system so i understand that and in you bring up a very valid point steph is is that the cost of, of becoming a pilot's gonna go up and there's already a shortage coming. I mean, people are talking about, it. there are not as many pilots out there. So um, it's gonna impact it, I think it will. But I, I understand the other side. I mean, it's it's, it's, a, it's an in, it, it's a industry um, that is pretty much with a lot of red tape, there's been no progress, there's been a lot of wasted resources uh with you know, Jeff and I deal with it going into Atlanta with all these new uh SIDs and and, and, and uh stars that were all redesigned and they cost uh how many millions and millions of dollars to do this and they don't work. So, you know, it's it's it is a lot of investment that have, has been thrown away, and the government's like, "Oh well, you know, it's it's taxpayer money. Who cares?" I mean, so that's that's where the privatization will come in handy. Is that you know, there's not going to be a lot of waste. There's going to be more fiscal responsibility. It's going to be more development and more more money placed where it needs to be.
2: Yep, I, guess I you know, I see like Jeff was saying, you can kind of see both sides of it. Yeah. You can argue it either way. You Jennifer know, a, Jennifer
1: made a point. So why why privatize it? What What's wrong with the way it's the way working it now?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, Dana just gave you yeah, know, exactly. at least one example of it. And right. I'm sure there's others. And I'm sure just thinking going forward, you know, do we keep things as they are just because it works well now? Or are there going to be additional challenges and needs in the future that might be better met from a private perspective? Yeah. Um, that's hard to say. But, you know, I, I think as it is right now, no one's really had any Major complaints with how it works. I think that's the biggest concern. Is that why change something that's not really obviously broken? If it ain't
1: broke, don't fix it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well,
4: Well, it is. I mean, the reason it saves money for the government. So, and if you're well. Insisting on uh, reducing its
2: costs, <laughs> we, we can think of other ways for the government to save money. I think.
1: Yeah, and I think that uh, I think that <laughs> that's kind of a uh, touchy subject. Something that uh, they they claim it'll save the, but that money is going to get spent. Somewhere well, they've
2: else. they've spent it somewhere else already. Yeah. Is the problem?
1: Yeah, they so. really haven't earmarked it for anything in particular. It's it's all these make believe <laughs> funds that are set aside what, for various what, what things.
5: What, indus- what industry is the high has some of the highest taxes placed upon it?
1: Um,
5: Airline industry. Oh, okay. The airline <laughs> you get all tr- yeah, t- yeah, facility know. Know. charges, TSA charges, you know, sales tax, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have, uh, you know, the airline industry is one of the highest tax uh, industries, and now you're going to add on. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing because they're going to have a pay-for-use system. So yeah, so that's that's what's going to going to end up happening, and and it, it is going to be the additional tax. It's going to be paying not directly into the government, but it's going to be collected by the airlines and paid into the, you know, into the air trap control system. So yes, it's also going to affect the airlines because the fares are going to go up.
2: Although I I will say it's funny because, you know, if you think about how a lot of Americans think about um, industry and government, there's a lot of Americans who want smaller government, government to have their hands in fewer things. Um, But even people who are on that side of the fence politically, the ones I've talked to, at least, kind of said, "just just leave ATC alone. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't need to be." Yeah, I'm one of those. You know, I'm yeah.
1: all for you know
2: smaller government, smaller less, government, you know. and mm-hmm.
1: you know, but uh, uh, but I still I think that uh, the system's working fine in our country. Oh,
4: and, I, I, I think you should privatize the Air Force.
1: Well, uh, there uh, a good argument can be made <laughs> for that too. <laughs> I mean, I've I've, I've seen some uh, incredible. Um, waste and abuse um, in my short time in the in the U.S. military, and uh, because of the, the the way they the system runs, it's the, they get a certain amount of money per fiscal year, and if you don't use that money, then the next year you, they're going to decrease the amount of money that they're going to allow you to spend. And so, what happens? Hey guys,
5: yeah, I had a really nice day at the Air Force Museum today. Don't be talking about this right now. You're, you're, <laughs> I'm, feeling very, I'm feeling very patriotic. I'm feeling very no, I'm just saying that they do some great things. By our military.
1: <laughs> no, I'm just saying that I'm thinking that uh, it's, I, it's I just a very, it's not a very efficiently run as far as fiscally uh, as it could be. I think, uh, you know, if it if it were a private entity, that uh, they they could probably do a much better job of spending money uh, more efficiently but that has nothing to do with the fact that the people that are in the US military are uh, the some of the best people in the world and that the, their training is you know is is greater than anything that they can get anywhere else and the equipment that they fly and and uh, use is is amazing and so you know there's that, that not to take away anything from the people that are serving in the in the US military but it's just the the way that they I mean I still remember sitting in my office a guy coming in with a clipboard saying, okay, let's see, you need a new desk and you need a new filing cabinet. And I said, well, no, I don't. Everything is just fine. And he goes, no, you need a new desk and a new filing cabinet. And I said, what? And he goes, look, if we don't spend this money, we're not going to have it available. And we might need the money next Mm -hmm. year. And it's not a flexible system. Once the uh, amount that you spent goes down, it'll never, ever go back back up again. So, I mean, and another example, we used to go fly... Um, local training missions, and at the beginning of the fiscal year, if you've knocked out all the requirements necessary for these training missions, they'd let you come in and land early, and of course that saves money for the taxpayers, we're not burning all that fuel, but toward the end of the fiscal year, guess what? You're up there on a local mission, you've knocked out everybody's requirements, it's time to get it back down on the ground, you have to ask permission from the command post to land and and end the mission You know, early, instead of being up there for four hours, you may only need two and a half. And they'll say, no, you need to go up there and keep flying around in circles and doing approaches and burning this fuel because, again, if we if we don't use that fuel, that money that we've spent on that fuel this year, then we're not going to get it back next year. And I'm thinking – there's just something really Seems wrong with that. Wasteful. system. very oh. wasteful. Yeah,
4: yeah. yeah so you're exactly the same system in my air force when I was in there, Jeff. Uh, we had a bucket of fuel, and uh, you had to burn it by the end of the year. And I remember getting airborne in uh, bloody Phantom and just drilling holes through the night sky. What a waste! Down the country, just burning fuel because if we didn't burn it, the budget would be reduced next year.
2: That, and therein lies the logic of government.
1: Right. And, and, you know, doing something like that, Captain Nick, is very disappointing to me because it doesn't sound like you were.
4: We're going green.
0: We're going green. We're going to take care of the
4: earth. We're We're going green. green. Not at all. Uh, This was the 70s. We didn't have green back
1: then. (laughs) (laughs) You had purples and blues and flowers Queen psychedelic monochrome <laughs> <laughs> no don't remember much from then okay let's see so uh, again thank you Glenn for your uh, audio feedback and you posed a, a very um, interesting and pertinent question and I'm not sure we're going to really know the answer until
2: something happens they privatize it either, <laughs> either it will happen or it won't
1: yeah so, we'll see. that's our stance either it's good or bad it may happen or may not
2: mm-hmm.
1: all right and I'm uh, just, just an aside, I know that Steph was thinking about going, but it looks like there's a thunderstorm that's uh, right over the top of us. <laughs> right Yeah,
2: I, I'll stick it out a few more minutes okay, here because, good. Uh, yeah.
1: Thank you, the God, for is, bringing that thunderstorm and making Steph stay longer.
2: It's like pouring rain and thunder and lightning, <laughs> so I'll give it a few
1: minutes. Okay, good. I mean, not that, well, whatever. Yeah. Okay, this is uh, some audio feedback sent in from Scott Cotton in Asheville, North Carolina.
3: Hey APG crew, this is Scott from Asheville, North Carolina, Beer City, USA. I was on a flight from Atlanta to Tucson back in the uh, latter part of March. Uh, flew out there on a Mad Dog to uh, go to Tucson, visit some friends, and then go to the Grand Canyon. Then we came back from Tucson on the same MD90, and uh, we we're boarding at Tucson Airport, which is a kind of a quaint little, quiet airport. I'm walking down the jet bridge and waiting, I'm waiting my turn to get to the, get to the plane. And I'm standing right at the jet bridge control area where you can see into the cockpit. And, you know, being a curious guy, I'm leaning over the edge, looking in the window, watching what's going on. And I see the captain, he's got his phone out and he's doing something on his phone. I figure he's probably checking emails or checking text messages or something like that. Maybe he was checking the weather. I don't know. But as I get a little closer and I start to walk in the door, This is what I'm greeted with. And it wasn't just quiet, it was blasting out of the cockpit. As much as I wanted to stick my head in there and say what was going on, there was a stewardess standing in the way, and I asked her, I said, is this normal? She says, yeah, I think maybe this is gonna be our new boarding music. It was pretty good. So I wonder, APG guys and gals, does your cockpit rock? (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a good question. Thank you for that uh, that feedback, uh, Scott. And um, I, you know, I've been known to play some music uh, from my mobile device, and it, usually it's like using the um, micro, the hand mic, and then putting up it against the speaker of my phone and playing it on the PA system uh, for the crew to. Uh, kind of listen to and stuff like that but usually when passengers approved. are boarding yeah you know i i'm not really even sure that that's the, a, a, a a something that's allowed by the trick, policy the tricky
2: thing is that there's a I wide variety in taste in music and what you yeah. think is either innocuous or acceptable
1: to somebody, everyone
2: someone so, else will take
1: somebody may think like scott thinking this is aw- this is yeah. awesome I you know it's great music and it's kind of cool to see the crew rocking out you know to but then on the other hand I can see people going uh, yeah. really this is Where's a professional environment Yeah, exactly and you're listening to this music and then obviously that's going to be distracting and that's going to take away from you know making sure that you're all your attention to detail of everything yeah. to keep me safe as a passenger uh, I think no. and I think Dana you'll probably agree with me that I think that our management would probably frown a little bit on doing that kind of thing what do you think
5: I think absolutely they would fine upon it. I think it, you know, if you're going to do something like that, you need to be discreet, i.e. put headphones into your ears. And if you want to do that, that's fine. I mean, the company policy, I think says up until completion or, or uh, execution of the pre-flight checklist, you, know, you can use your mobile device. They can't tell you not to, but as long as you do your job, I and mean, then once you have the pre-flight checklist complete, it's turned off, period. So, um, but I, w- I would say that that would not be a professional image that they would want to.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. So do you guys not have boarding music or something?
1: Well, you know, we do have boarding music. I like the boarding music. And sometimes it's kind of weird. It's not always my taste. But it seems like the flight attendants almost unanimously hate. Boarding well,
2: music it's always like soothing, like I think, uh, I, I, right? Like
1: I always want to say, I know you you can't stand the boarding music, but I think that passengers like having music going on, and to some of them, it's soothing, mm-hmm. um, and usually it is kind of a soothing, soothing uh, style of music. Uh, but uh, and I'm, I'm I'm always a little disappointed that the flight attendants kind of just automatically turn the turn the boarding music off i wish they'd leave it on i guess i could say something like we need to have the boarding music on but then again that may may affect the relationship that i have with my cabin crew and i want to make sure that it's always a very positive you know good relationship because you know when something goes wrong i want to make yeah. sure that we-
2: i mean it sounds like something that the company needs to set a policy on and just yeah it. I, uh, you know and if it's not a firm they, policy then
1: i think they do, yeah. do. yeah it's just that they they, that they, they tend it- yeah. yeah yeah go ahead dana
5: I mean, let's say say you're working in a store, right, and you hear the same uh, music, which is the old uh, Mm -hmm. recorder that used to play over the uh, the speaker system. And I worked at uh, CVS to be specific. Um, I used to hear the same music over and over and over every shift at work. So I'm not defending the flight, because by company policy, they're supposed to have it on. And I think that if if anybody's a little, you know, because people – I think, naturally are are uh, nervous to to be getting on an airplane or amped up or, you know, a little stressed out. Or any any one of those. But soothing music, I think, might help a little bit. Uh, so they're turning it off because they're probably tired of hearing it on every single leg.
1: That's exactly so, why. Yeah. But they have to kind of think. Yeah. They have to step back and look at the big picture and say, you know what? Even though I've heard this over and over it's and over a again. Customer service. Thing. It's yeah. a customer service yeah, I mean, I thing. But again, that's one of those little yeah. those battles that I don't feel like I should try to win because I'm going to lose the war, you know, kind of thing. So I, I usually don't say anything, but it's, uh, you know, I wish that they'd, you know, leave the boarding music on, you know, for boarding and deplaning.
2: Now, we'll see from a uh, GA standpoint, I can listen to all the music I want. Well, you're lucky. And we my uh, Bose A20 headsets have Bluetooth. So. Can I have one of up those headsets too. So you could listen. I to wish I could, TV but it's not, yeah, it's uh, not allowed. Not allowed. <laughs>
1: it's not legal for not me legal. to do so. Yeah. It's against the policy of my know. company. I see. Yeah. So, but I have it there. I
5: don't think the allowed.
1: Yeah. I uh, for I Part One to
5: do
2: that. I think they do yep. for general aviation, but not
1: really. I don't
2: know. I, don't I think, think I think, so. I I think so. it's okay in general
1: aviation. Yeah. I think it's just Part One Twenty One.
2: I mean, because even there's airplanes that have XM radio. Yeah, in it like satellite radio,
1: right? But the the nice feature oh. about the Bluetooth on the uh, A A twenty is the fact that I can connect my phone to it and on the ground talk to my dispatcher right through my headset. Right, So yeah. that's that nice. nice, and that's allowed. Yeah, I, I'd never do anything that's not allowed. You know that, people. All right, let's uh, let's do something buy by the book. Yeah, by the book. That's what they call me by the book, Nielsen. Uh, let's uh, play a little bit of. Plane Tales, what do you think? Sounds good to me. All right, here we go.
4: The Old Pilot's Plane tails Blackbird, bye-bye. In the skunk works, the usual stink from the nearby plastics factory drifted in through the open windows of the Burbank Engineering Building. Kelly Johnson and the rest of his engineers hardly noticed anymore as they were intensely involved in designing one of the most secret and advanced aircraft ever conceived. Out of all the creations that this hotbed of Lockheed genius was to produce, this was to be their pinnacle, the fastest air-breathing manned aircraft that has ever flown. Ever since work on the U-2 was completed, Kelly knew that his current project would be needed. The U-2 that the Skunk Works designed in 1953 was slow, and although it flew at incredible altitudes in the rarefied air of the upper atmosphere, it was easy to track on radar and was eventually going to be vulnerable as the Soviets developed a counter, as Gary Powers would find out. The new project was named Archangel, and began in late 1958. The CIA were the customers, and they looked at 11 successive designs over the next year, but although A-10 was the front-runner, they wanted its radar cross-sectional area reduced by an incredible 90%. A contract worth $96 million was approved, and from it came the A-12. Convair was also in the competition, but despite their aircraft being named the first invisible super-hustler, I think the CIA may have balked at flying a fish. Development was hampered as the aircraft was entering areas of aviation previously unimagined. Entirely new technologies had to be invented, many of which are still in use today, One of the biggest problems the engineers had was working with titanium. Previously, on high-speed aircraft, the material was only needed in areas such as the exhaust fairings and wing-leading edges. However, the A-12 was constructed almost entirely of titanium, with some iron ferrite and silicon laminates, both of which were combined with asbestos to absorb radar returns. There were any limited reserves of the precious rutile ore needed, so the CIA conducted a worldwide search using third parties and dummy companies. They eventually managed to purchase the base metal from one of the world's leading exporters, the Soviet Union. So, the A-12 was conceived, built, and first flew in 1962 – It was both unofficial and unannounced. It was then and still looks like a science-fiction spaceship built for Buck Rogers. Two enormous engines are embedded mid-span into a small round-tipped delta wing, from which a long fuselage juts, with its flattened and sharpened chines, flat bottom and blended upper portion, into which the angular cockpit is mounted. Two angled fins adhere to the engine cowlings, in front of which are fitted large pointed cone shaped intake spikes. To think that this elegant, sleek and purposeful design was created on a draftsman's board and not by computer goes to prove the genius that existed in the skunk works. Even stationary on the ground, it looks like it's already supersonic. The requirements for this aircraft were almost beyond the reach of the engineers. It needed to fill the role of a long-range reconnaissance aircraft, cruising at Mach 3 plus and over 80,000 feet. Vitally, it should also have a tiny radar cross-sectional area. The aircraft's enormous speed also assisted in radar invisibility. The radar technology of the period suffered from noise and needed clutter rejection systems. The operators could tell an aircraft from the repeated hits that built up in a trail of returns across the screen at the speed that the A-12 flew. Its tiny returns were so widely spaced that they just disappeared into the background clutter. The project wasn't without its setbacks. An aircraft with so many cutting-edge technologies was bound to suffer from problems, particularly whilst the test pilot strived to explore the very edges of its flight envelope. The first loss came when CIA pilot Ken Collins was flying in cloud when the water froze in his aircraft's pitot-static boom. With erroneous information on his displays, he inadvertently stalled and when the aircraft entered an inverted spin, he ejected. The aircraft crashed near Wendover in Utah. The reaction to the crash illustrated the secrecy and importance of the project. The CIA called the aircraft a Republic F-105 Thunderchief as a cover story. Local law enforcement and a passing family were warned with dire consequences to keep quiet about the crash. Each was also paid $25,000 in cash to do so. The project often used such cash payments to avoid outside inquiries into its operations. The CIA ordered 12, some of which were deployed to Asia and used during Operation Black Shield over North Vietnam to identify surface-to-air missile sites. Operations and maintenance at Gadina began with the receipt of an alert notification. Both a primary aircraft and pilot and a backup aircraft and pilot were selected. The aircraft were given thorough inspections and servicing, all systems were checked and the cameras equipped. Pilots received a detailed route briefing in the early evening prior to the day of the flight. On the morning of the flight a final briefing occurred at which time the condition of the aircraft and its systems were reported, last minute weather forecast reviewed and other relevant intelligence communicated, together with any amendments or changes in the flight plan. Two hours prior to takeoff, the primary pilot had a medical examination, got into his suit, and was taken to the aircraft. If any malfunctions developed on the primary aircraft, the backup could execute the mission one hour later. A typical route profile for a mission over North Vietnam included a refueling shortly after takeoff, south of Okinawa, the planned photographic pass or passes, withdrawal to a second aerial refueling in the Thailand area, and a return to Kadena. Its turning radius of 86 miles was such, however, that on some mission profiles it might be forced during its turn to intrude into Chinese airspace. Once landed, the camera film was removed from the aircraft, boxed, and sent by special plane to the processing facilities. Film from earlier missions was developed at the Eastman Kodak plant in Rochester, New York. There were a number of reasons leading to the retirement of the A-12, but one major concern was the growing sophistication of Soviet-supplied SAM sites that it had to contend with over mission routes. During a second pass over a target, pilot Dennis Sullivan saw at least six missiles being fired, each confirmed by missile vapour trails on mission photography. Looking through his rear-view periscope, Sullivan saw six missile trails climb to about 90,000 feet before converging on his aircraft. He noted the approach of four missiles, and although they all detonated behind him, one came within 100 yards of his aircraft. Post-flight inspection revealed that a piece of metal had penetrated the lower right wing fillet area and lodged against the support structure of the wing tank. From the A-12 in 1962, the SR-71 Blackbird was born. The Air Force version was longer and heavier, with a two-seat cockpit, and a total of 32 were built. The chines were reshaped and the recce equipment was improved with ELINT sensors and sideways looking radar in addition to the cameras. The aircraft was painted a deep dark blue that looked almost black, hence its name. Whilst it carried radar countermeasures, the Blackbird's main missile defence was merely to out-accelerate inbound missiles. No other aircraft in the world could match its height and speed. During its service life, no SR-71 was ever shot down. However, some aircraft were lost, but none in more dramatic circumstances than that of Bill Weaver's machine. His mission was to investigate how to reduce trim drag during high-speed Mach cruise by locating the C of G further aft than was usual. At 78,000 feet and doing a mere 3.2 Mach, they began a turn but soon suffered a right inlet unstart, soon followed by a loss of thrust from the right J58 engine. An inlet unstart occurred when a shock wave was rapidly ejected outside of the intake area, disturbing the airflow. The asymmetric force soon had an effect, and Weaver jammed his stick as far left and forward as it would go, but there was no response. He was in for a wild ride. The chances of a safe ejection at that height and speed were remote, so Bill and his Rio, Jim Zuea, decided to stay with the aircraft until it reached a lower altitude. However, the system's failures meant that his aircraft exceeded the authority of his flight controls in a second or two and entered a catastrophic departure from controlled flight. Jim blacked out under extremely high G-forces and his aircraft literally disintegrated around him. The next thing he recalled was the rushing sound of air around him as he fell earthwards. He hadn't initiated ejection, but had been bodily thrown from the aircraft as it broke up. His pressure suit was keeping him alive, but he couldn't see anything as his faceplate was frozen up. As he plummeted down, an emergency oxygen bottle kept his suit pressurized, preventing his blood from boiling, and a tiny drogue chute stabilized him and kept him from being beaten to death whilst tumbling through the thin atmosphere. At 15,000 feet, his main parachute should open, but he couldn't see the ground. As he reached for his faceplate, he felt the reassuring deceleration of his main chute deploying, and he floated down into New Mexico. His landing was seen by a ranch owner, Albert Mitchell, who first helped Bill and then took his helicopter to search for Jim Swear. Mitchell returned a while later with the sad news that Jim was dead, it suffered a broken neck during the aircraft's disintegration and being killed instantly. An investigation revealed that the nose section of the aircraft had broken off just after the cockpit. The resulting G-forces had literally ripped the crew out of the aircraft after CFG testing was discontinued and the trim drag issues were solved by aerodynamic means. Moreover, the inlet control system was improved and the inlet unstarts almost stopped with the development of digital automatic flight and inlet control systems. Two weeks after his brush with death, Jim was back in a blackbird. It was his first flight since the crash, and his flight test engineer in the back seat was probably a little apprehensive, wondering how Bill was going to be. As they thundered down the runway, he heard the engineer's voice over the intercom. ''Bill, Bill, are you still there?'' ''Yeah, George,'' Weaver replied, ''what's the matter?'' the back seat of the SR-71 was enclosed with no forward view, just a couple of small side windows, and when the master warning panel there showed a big red warning reading pilot ejected, the engineer thought he might be on his own. Fortunately, it was just a misadjusted micro switch. Even by today's standards, the Blackbird was an innovative and incredibly sophisticated aircraft. Its speed was actually limited by the temperature of the air entering the engine compressor, which was not certified above 427 degrees centigrade. The engines were started by a massive Buick Wildcat V8 engine that spun them from underneath via a vertical shaft. The fuel the aircraft used was initially a type of coal slurry, then liquid hydrogen, but in practice, JP-7 was used because of its high flashpoint, plus its thermal stability. To start the engine, triethyl borane, which ignites on contact with air, was first injected as a starting aid, giving rise to the characteristic green starting flame. The Blackbird updated its inertial navigation system through a sophisticated astro-inertial system, which could track the blue light of stars even in daylight, and could maintain a 1,000-foot accuracy even above Mach 3. The pressure suits, which the crew wore, would keep them alive should the aircraft depressurize at 80,000 feet. The cockpit needed a lot of cooling out over Mach 3 as the skin would heat to over 260 degrees centigrade and the inside of the windshield reached 120 degrees C. The tyres also suffered from high temperatures and a special aluminium rubber mix was developed. They cost $2,300 each and only lasted 20 missions. The fuselage panels were only a loose fit to allow expansion at their operating temperature, which meant the aircraft would leak JP 7 onto the ground before takeoff. The Blackbird family of aircraft flew over 17,000 missions, 3,551 of which were operational sorties. Over 11,675 hours were spent above Mach 3. It holds many speed and altitude records, including a sustained altitude record of 80,069 feet, an absolute speed record of 1,905 knots, which relates to Mach 3.3, although one pilot claimed to have reached Mach 3.5, evading a missile over Libya. It also holds the New York to London speed record of over 1,800 knots, completing the journey in one hour, 54 minutes and 57 seconds. The Blackbird was initially retired in 1990, but in 1993, three were returned to service at the cost of $72 million to provide reconnaissance over Bosnia, the Middle East and North Korea when UAVs proved to be a more cost effective solution this remarkable aircraft was finally retired in 1999 and what an amazing airplane it is and was well it still is i guess it still is yeah, yeah. absolutely it is a real shame it's not still flying i think we'd all love to see them uh, but is the, it
1: uh, is it really not still flying
4: do we know that for sure <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure they, uh, they couldn't afford to keep them going. It, it was just too expensive compared with drones. By the way, I must uh, thank uh, Adam Asma for the uh, suggestion, for uh, doing the story of uh, Bill Weaver. Uh, and, uh, of course, the rest of the uh, story about the SR-71 just followed on from that.
1: Excellent. We always get, uh, or you always get great ideas from the community.
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've got a nice list. I'm never short of ideas, but, you know, if you think up something special and you've got a particularly um, good uh, story that you'd like to hear told, uh, then I'd be more than happy to receive any more uh, suggestions. So they just go onto the list. A bit like the feedback list, though. It does get quite long. Yes. That's all right. That's okay. Absolutely.
5: And I was, and, and it's amazing that I was looking at had my eyes on that airplane today, and I was not. On that, and I, I, uh, it's one, it truly is one of my favorite aircraft I ever built. It's just an amazing feat.
1: And I'm wondering what kind of, I wonder what they have out there now that's flying around that's replacing it and probably doing things even better than it. Well, the, uh,
4: the rumor was the Aurora, but that's never been confirmed. I mean, uh, the SR-71 uh, became sort of public knowledge it's It's been uh, out of service now completely for coming close to 20 years. So, uh, you know, if they have got a uh, replacement, they've kept it <laughs> damn quiet. <laughs> yeah, so we'll
1: find out yeah, about it in the awesome. f- future. And they say, oh, yeah, we've been doing this for the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. But to be fair, I mean, I think satellite uh, uh, reconnaissance now is so sophisticated. There's probably not a great deal of need for uh, to fly aircraft. The great thing about having an aircraft like that was that you could react very quickly, and have one. Uh, you know, going over a country of interest, uh, I wouldn't say at a moment's notice, but, you know, much quicker than it would take to generate a, uh, or move a satellite. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. I don't know. But you're right about the
2: satellite pictures. I mean, mean even, satellite. you know, you pull up Google Maps, and you put on the satellite picture, and it's like, oh, there's my car in my driveway. Mm hmm.
4: Yeah, they have you ever yeah. tried looking like, at Google Maps over China, though? There's not an awful <laughs> I have <laughs> not. Lot of but, uh, there. Uh, <laughs> it's all fuzzy.
2: <laughs> Just <Yeah>. pixelated.
4: <laughs> Take a look at some of them. And actually, there are quite a few countries where there are they're surprisingly they're little details. So, huh. yeah. But, no, I, I, I'm i just all inspired with the uh, SR-71. And I didn't actually realize there was a previous version, the A-12, uh, until I got into the story big time. I just assumed it was all SR-71. But the CIA version, they only built 12 of them, but uh, they, they really kicked it all off. And, uh, uh, and, of course, it all goes back to the skunk works and um, those amazing engineers. That, I mean, just to think the things that they... Did those few guys down there uh, and uh, uh, Kelly Johnson's uh, leadership were amazing? Yeah, truly amazing. Mm-hmm. So, Steph uh, Lockheed, I might point not not Boeing Lockheed. Yes, Lockheed. You need to change a t-shirt, Jeff. So it says Lockheed. Well, I try to you know spread the joy
1: to to all the yeah, great. That's, that's no, I see no there.
4: joy. I see no joy
2: <laughs> <laughs> with all the Airbus t-shirts that you own.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll have to wear one of my Airbus t-shirts next time. <laughs>
2: We'll believe we'll that one with
1: <laughs> I'll send you one. Okay. So, Steph, is it time for you to go?
2: Yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna head out. Um, if you weren't around earlier, I do have concert tickets for tonight, and I was going to leave much earlier, but you know, as we said, there was a big thunderstorm that just moved through, and looks like it's there's a clearing now at least. So.
1: Yeah, this this uh, concert's like an it's outdoor outdoors. Then yeah,
2: <laughs> and I mean, it was thunder, lightning. Pouring rain for a good 10, 15 minutes there. So, yeah. radar looks like it's moved on, although there's some more behind it, but maybe I'll get to see. Yeah, the show so well, i'm I just hate so to waste glad the, that you were able to tickets, come as
1: long as you did or, i hate you, to skip out
2: on yeah. you guys early too so oh no
1: no no especially if, since we're here I every week last week same time same place I know, i'll be i'll be back yeah well nice week. i'm gonna be heading to bed pretty soon uh it's okay. nearly 2 a.m yeah so uh, yeah you need to get to get to bed as well it's fine we'll probably keep <laughs> on going a little bit longer so feel free uh nick if you if you need to leave as well and then dana and well, I. if there's
4: anything else you want me to comment on let's if we could do that next then uh then i'll feel free to Right.
2: Okay. Yeah, with that I will say good night. Okay. I'll see you all next week. Good night right. Jeff.
4: have good a nice. nice concert.
2: Thank you.
5: Enjoy the concert. Have fun. Now it's an old good.
1: person's concert, isn't it? <laughs>
5: Geriatrics. Geriatric concert. Yeah, yeah I think it's true.
1: uh Lawrence Welk and uh the uh, orchestra Hope. or something like that. Bob yeah, Hope. Big band. <laughs> big band. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I shouldn't be doing that. I love big band music. Yeah. Really? Okay. Next time we'll go see a big band. Of course, they don't really have concerts for big that band stuff very often. Okay, let's see. Let me look here to see if there is anything uh, that might be worth talking about or playing uh, while you're still here, and Captain Nick. Um, we talked about uh, flight duty period extensions. Uh, Steve sent us some, for some stuff with us. Uh, Nev didn't. Oh yeah, we have to play this. Can you can you stay up another 19 minutes? Uh,
4: yeah, just about.
1: Okay, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> about. Nev, have you ever heard of this guy, Neville Bounds? No. no. No, he's, I think he's a new be, listener. better be good.
4: Interesting name. <laughs> I noticed is. Nev isn't in the chat room, so uh, he's already gone to bed.
1: Yeah, he's smart. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, he sent some feedback. And, I, you know, Nick, I think you're going to be interested in this, actually. So uh, not that you wouldn't be, because Nev always sends us information or interesting stuff. But uh, let's take a listen to this one.
8: Hello, APGers. It's Nev here, freshly returned from my network executive event, I think it was called, in Santorini in Greece. And uh, a thoroughly nice time was had by all, and I am suitably suntanned. Whilst I was there, I bumped into a chap called Adam, who was part of our group, and he actually works for. Acme Red and uh, he works on the electronic flight bag development and systems. So I had my recording equipment with me as always and I thought I can't resist a quick interview with him and a bit of a chat. And He's got some very interesting things to say about his job as well. I started by asking him first of all how he got involved in the project.
6: Well, um I actually originated looking at um, system integration work for finance companies. I got very, very bored of that, and um, ended up lo- looking for something something a bit more newer, something a bit more challenge. Uh, I kind of wanted to prove to myself that the skills I learn as a business analyst are interchangeable between industries, so that's how I ended up. Where I am today, the project that I was placed on was just pure coincidence, really. Um, it was just what, what would need the work that needed to be done at the time that I arrived. And uh, so I just got the, the lowdown, the brief from the project manager that uh, they were looking to replace all of the paper manuals and charts and maps and, and all sorts of, I think they carry around 50 kilograms worth of paper on board every flight. Um, before we replaced them with iPads and and the idea was obviously you got the weight saving but not only the, the weight saving you've also got um, efficiency gains in how quickly they can get the data the information um, directly from the systems to the pilots hands uh, previously it was all printed shipped uh, and, and that, was, that was cost was you know sh- enormous uh, and now it's just it's just an instant flick of a button gets the information from one area to the next
8: so these are all the jepperson charts the the approach plates the airport layouts and all
6: this kind of stuff so you've got the uh, the the notams, which are pilot briefings notices you've also got um, the maps which is the jepperson flight deck pro is the application we chose to uh, do the maps you've got the airport layouts and stuff also on there uh, we also have replaced um, all of the instruction manuals that they have, there are hundreds of manuals and some of these are you know, huge, great big chunky things with you know, 500 pages each. Uh, and then we also replaced some of the work that they have to do manually um, to calculate their takeoff and landing speeds. So previously it was a lot of uh, sort of work between bits of paper and various calculators and all sorts of that and now it's all done on a a single iPad application and you don't have to call anyone to get any information. It's all there in, in front of you. It's just so much quicker and easier now, this must have made a huge difference to the pilots
8: uh, and the operating crew, particularly in situations of, of bad weather where, where there's a diversion required and this kind of thing, and, and they've just got the information uh, at their fingertips.
6: Yeah, well, that's uh, that's something we're still working on. So the maps and the manuals are, are kind of a one piece. Then we had a, a phase two t- for the project, which was um, Sabre EFM, which stands for Electronic Flight Manager, I believe. And uh, that gives them the routes and the routes routing information and that, that replaces the pilot's briefing pack which is, is still underway that, that phase of the project but that's the sort of thing that can um, like you were saying if there is bad weather at an airport that's the sort of thing that we can just simply change them uh, send them via 3G or 4G connectivity and then they'll get a completely rerouted piece of information a brand new briefing pack so that's the, that's that's still to come we are a little bit behind some other airlines. Um, I think British Airways had implemented this a long time before us, so we're still playing catch up. Now
8: the um, there's always a discussion about you know the hardware platform for this kind of thing as well. I know that uh, Acme themselves went for the surface uh, Microsoft surface products and that Acme Red's gone for um, the iPad. What was the decision making uh, do you think uh, by going down the the Apple uh, route for this?
6: I think it's because Acme Red took on board um, the pilot's feedback a lot more than some other companies have. Uh, We actually had two pilots working with us on the projects. One of them was um, the chief pilot uh, at the time and um, he obviously knew the pilot community a lot more. He knew that the pilots all had a lot of them already have um, Apple products and they're comfortable with using the products Uh, and it was more it was more for basically them to be able to get to use it and get used to it easier. Whereas I think other airlines have, haven't have really probably consulted the pilots as well. And they are more interested in how much control IT have over the device. Whereas we were more interested in how easy it's going to be for our pilots to use. So that's, what, that's one of the main reasons we went for them.
8: Yeah, that human interface is really important, isn't it? How long is the project going to run for and how long do you think it will take to go from the traditional paper environment to entirely uh, paperless?
6: We're hoping by the end of this year it will be completely finished. But they do have already got plans for more apps. And I know some of the pilots are actually downloading apps themselves, ones that they have heard of and and, then using their own credentials, something like weather and stuff like that, but we're also looking at Electronic Logbook, that's the other thing that they're looking at getting on the iPads as well. Um, Other things include like damage reports, and and there's a whole host of weather apps they want to try bringing on as well. So the possibilities are endless, really. The project officially finishes when Electronic Flight Manager, EFM, is uh, implemented, and that should be by the end of the year. And also when we've got all of the the cradles and the mounts, because that's another huge piece of the project, was getting all of the mounts and the cradles installed within the actual flight deck itself.
8: Did you have to get sort of bespoke solutions for that, or were there off-the-shelf solutions for, for charging and, and and mounting the iPads?
6: So everything has to be, you know, fire tested and approved for for use in an airline. Um, so, but there are obviously manufacturers that do that. Some of them don't. But obviously, we tend to go for the ones that have got those certificates because getting the certificates on something uh, it takes can take months and can be very expensive. So we did actually end up choosing. Um, you know like parts that already had been tested and already got the certificates but it, it, it was pretty painful that piece actually because we had some very bad supplies to be honest uh, and there was it's also very expensive a lot more expensive than we thought it would be we're also looking at um, implementing something uh, called a tablet interface device uh, uh, and that's going to be able to read from the airline systems and display the information on the actual ipads that's hopefully going to go into some of the older older aircrafts. So you said that uh, last night over dinner we were be talking that
8: uh, this is actually a fleet-wide uh, thing so it's going to cover the Airbus products and also uh, the uh, 787s and legacy 747 equipment as well. Um, are, are there different implementations and, uh, and different teams working on, on different fleets for this?
6: Uh, same project team, different set of engineers obviously doing the work but, but no, it's it's obviously we do one fleet at a time. So we started with the air with the Airbus um, A330s. and moved on to A340s, and then 747s are going to go last. Um, but there are different requirements, obviously, um, especially in, in regards to the the mounts and the power that you have to put on board, uh, and also the, the different accessories. We didn't we didn't think of this actually because some of the the plugs that you use to charge are too far away from the actual mount, so we had to extra long cables and the other thing was we couldn't even the old 747s they don't even have charging abilities within the flight deck so we had to buy battery packs <laughs> for the pilots to carry There's another piece of equipment for, for them to carry so their pockets are getting heavier but um, yeah these are some of the challenges that we, we didn't expect. Are we we get there, yeah.
8: And I guess the, the 747 fleet in that Acme Red is probably going to be phased out at some stage as well, so it must be quite an interesting bit of mathematics of uh, just working out the, the value of bringing the EFB product in, in, into that, that fleet and, and how long it would last for.
6: Yeah, there was a discussion on whether or not it would be cost beneficial for the 747 but in the end it did turn out that that it would be because we are, there is still quite a long life left in those aircraft and it's going to be a long time before we we have enough, uh, you know, brand new aircraft to replace them and they're also, they're big as well. So yeah, we need that extra, we need those extra aircraft at the moment. How many people work in your team uh, that are delivering this project, Adam? So I'm the senior business analyst on the project. I've got one business analyst working uh, for me on that particular project. Uh, there's a project manager from technology. Uh, and then we have three or four people from the business. So we have a couple of pilots. We have the head of aircraft performance and efficiency working with us. We also have a couple of uh, EFB administrators, they're called. Uh, they're brilliant team, excellent. They know everything about the EFB. Uh, they work very, very closely. In fact, they are pretty much the, the key stakeholders. We are sort of guided by those guys. And then we have a couple of engineers as well. Um, so they kind of give us all their requirements for, for how what we have to buy and things we have to do to get the mounts and, on board. And do you have like a sort of like a beta testing team uh
8: not just sort of back in your lab as it were but uh, actually in real life operating flying conditions as well to to try it all out and make sure it works properly
6: yeah, so they had uh they had i think the first ever flight we we went on with these electronic flight bears they had a couple of the project guys unfortunately not me fly with them but they've also still carrying paper at the moment we haven't actually pulled the paper out so they're still so they, they're basically getting pilots used to flying with the iPads and still carrying the paper as a backup and then eventually it will be it will be pilots using iPads only and no paper. So that's where we start seeing the, the benefits.
8: Yeah, interesting. And last night, so we were talking about the new Airbus product, the A350. That sounds a very exciting uh, project to work on and a, a terrific aircraft, isn't it, as well?
6: Yeah, that's where I'm spending most of my time nowadays. Um, and that's looking at the similar kind of stuff. We're looking at uh, electronic flight bag, uh, log books. We're looking at, and in particular, I'm, I'm more looking at the software that goes into the flight deck. So there's over... Uh, 500 bits of, of configurable software that go into the aircraft everything from you know turning the lights on to you know putting the wheels out all, all of that's all controlled by software and um, some of it's configurable, some of it's not. So then you've got to look at how did the engineers configure it, what systems they used to configure it, uh, what processes do they use to get it after they've configured it to get it from these back office systems onto the aircraft. So is it 3G? Is it Wi-Fi? Uh, we also looking at USB sticks. So they carry USB sticks. The 787 actually had a maintenance laptop that the Airbus A350 doesn't have anything like that. Uh, we're also looking at um, Various tablet devices for the um, the built-in EFB. So they have um, in the flight that they have something which is called a toaster, and um, it does actually—it's called a toaster because it just looks like a toaster. And what it is, it's just like a little slot that you can put a device into, um, whether that be an iPad or, or a Surface or, or anything else. So we're just yeah just doing tests uh, again with the pilots in mind, just seeing which one's the best, and the EFB administrators are looking at them as well. Uh, but it's a very similar process, which is probably why I'm on it. <laughs> now, obviously with the iPad, it's a very
8: popular product. And as you said, you know, a lot of pilots uh, have got them, you know, from a consumer and domestic point of view. But uh, having worked with Apple myself in, in the past, uh, it, I know how notoriously difficult it is to get software written and approved for the iOS platform. W- was that a particular challenge uh, for your team? We looked at the surface.
6: <clears throat> um, but the off-the-shelf solutions available on the surface, we didn't think were as good as the ones on the iPad. Uh, the solutions that we chose were Jibson uh, FD Pro, came off the shelf, um, great app. We also chose um, which has Boeing OPT, which is the takeoff and landing calculator. Um, we chose um, Airbus FlySmart, which is the takeoff and landing calculator for Airbus. But the, the other one we chose, which is the only private app, on our devices is an application called LogiPad, uh, which is a fantastic application made in made in Germany. That just looked so much better on the iPad. They did have it available on the, on the surface, um, yeah, the Microsoft Surface as well. But it, it just didn't look as nice. It wasn't quite as easy to use. They've been great suppliers actually. They're, they've been very easy to work with. And it hasn't been too much trouble getting getting it all set up in the back office actually I was just gonna ask you about that because when this stuff comes out of the factory in Toulouse
8: you know the the average punter like me assumes it's all ready to go but there's obviously a a great deal of customization and and customer uh, options available for these sorts of things as well that must take a lot of working out
6: yeah 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 huge amount Um, luckily the guy I'm working with um, and that software engineer he's he's done it all before on the 787 so it's a very similar kind of process, just a different different company. But but yeah, what, what we have to do still is we have to figure out which bits of software are configurable. Then we need to go and speak to the business stakeholders and, and find out, OK, you can change this to, I don't know, you can make the lights red, yellow, or green. What do you want to make them? Uh, and then we can gather all these requirements, and then we basically pass it over to the engineers to, to configure before before loading onto the aircraft. There's still a lot of work to do. We've still got probably about a year's worth of work to do before we can actually start loading onto the aircraft. But other things we need to look at as well is um, these, soft, these bits of software gather a lot of data so about stuff like the aircraft performance and security we have security logs and stuff and loads of stuff coming off the data so they're one of the other pieces of where we need to look at is what do we do with all this data who's interested in it so i mean fuel data everyone's interested in that at the moment because fuel is such an expense for our airline you know where does it need to go in what format does it need to get to that system where what do, they, what do they want to print with it how secure does it need to be how long do you want to keep it for so many questions that you need to ask these uh, these business stakeholders it's it's uh, a it's a lot more detailed than you think. As you say you know it's really well having all this data but it's got to be
8: presented in, in a usable state and, uh, and put into uh, some sort of format which is
6: meaningful and you know then looks at the uh, economics of running the airline I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, we're still actually still looking at how much data we're going to get as well on the size of it and a lot of these are questions we still got to get from um, Airbus we're actually going over to Toulouse in September who are a week-long workshop so it's going to be quite an intense session of of information gathering and uh, and then it will have to take all that information back to back to the airline and discuss what we do next
8: <laughs> yeah it's quite a quite a involved process isn't it and it is. uh just just talking to you last night as well um obviously acme red's a pretty large airline uh not, not not the largest by any means but quite quite large and then i said to you uh oh do you happen to know a chap called uh captain nick anson you went oh yeah i've heard of that
6: name <laughs> i've seen the name yep i've seen a lot of names because we actually had to we had to um deliver all of the ipads to to the pilots addresses so i've definitely. I definitely do remember seeing Nick Anderson's name on there somewhere. So a couple of them I actually um, personally delivered. I don't think it was Nick's. No, no. Well, I know that. Uh, when
8: he was talking on the show a few weeks ago. He, he was saying how impressed he was with it, and I, and I think the people that embrace that technology and and the if the user interface is right and if it does what they want it to do easily and quickly, it's going to be a winner, isn't it? Particularly with the the weight savings uh, from, yeah. from the paperwork side. Of it. Yeah,
6: yeah, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I'm. I'm it's good to hear because I, I don't often get to speak to the pilots myself actually i get to speak to some of the uh, the training captains when they come into the office but a lot of them just go straight from their home obviously to the air to the airports so it's good to hear feedback i was chatting to a pilot actually at the, at the bar once on a flight to adziga and he was he was telling me what he liked and what he didn't like about it some of the problems i think a lot of the moans i'm hearing uh, are around uh, connectivity particularly at, at our airports um they're struggling to pick up 3G in some places. They're uh, struggling with Wi-Fi. So, so, and obviously some of these documents can be huge, you like sort of gigabytes in size. Um, so sometimes they have to wait quite a long time to get their updates. And I think that can be quite, quite frustrating. But it is something that we have passed on to our, to our IT guys.
8: I think it's a universal problem, isn't it? Bandwidth. You know, it's a bit like uh, a main strip. You know, you can never have enough. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the bandwidth thing, uh, wherever you
6: go, is, is critical, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Cancun is just horrendous. for, for uh, And also um, Havana. The connectivity in these these out stations are just just horrendous so we've had to look up other options and you know whether or not they could just use hotel Wi-Fi or whether they can put up with you know not updating their iPads for a certain time you know what's the impact of that uh, but so far, I think it's going OK. I mean, they don't have to be updated every five minutes. They, you know, they're not that frequent. The updates so normally about once a week. Just jumping back to the Airbus project that you are working What what's the, the
8: status of that now? What's the, what's the delivery schedule and what, what's the plan there?
6: It's all green at the moment, I believe. We're having a couple of uh, problems with our electronic logbook. We don't actually know if it's going to be electronic or not yet because we're looking at doing other stuff. Um, uh, elsewhere in the business that could impact that. So we're still looking at that. We're, there's obviously a lot of work going on in the cabins as well, the cabin work stream. What seats do we choose? What color do we make the interiors? All that sort of stuff. Uh, there's been some debates. Obviously a lot of people have different ideas, but I think they, they've finally come to a decision now. And at the moment, what they're doing is they're just building up their business cases. They're just putting the business cases forward for approval. Um, that's, that's the main bit of work going on at the moment
8: superb adam well thanks so much indeed for talking to me today and uh sounds as though it's a, a
6: very interesting project to be involved with yeah yeah it's very interesting yeah it's been uh, it's been an exciting journey so far <laughs> thanks very much indeed
1: nick anderson nick nick who never heard of him <laughs> i don't think he
4: flies for acme red there, there are a few skippers around um <laughs> how come all nev's uh, interviews seem to be with blokes called adam
1: i don't know interesting maybe he's just making all this stuff up adam.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> interesting interview i mean it was interesting to hear about the um you know the the decisions that were made regarding you know what tablet to choose and uh, and what i really loved was hearing that they were more concerned about what the pilots would be more most comfortable with and not what control that it could have over you know the the use of the device and i'm thinking wow that's kind of opposite to
4: that's an awful, yeah, to one idea one. yeah there, there was a lot of new stuff for me actually because because we we very rarely get to mix with these blokes so uh it's it's fabulous to uh you know hear uh, the other side how all those decisions was made yeah
1: and the fact that uh, uh you know obviously they trust their pilots still I'm sorry, I guess we're talking over each other because of the bandwidth here, but uh, they obviously trust you guys more than they trust our pilot group to have some control over, you know, the the types of um, applications that we're allowed to install and uh, and all that. Because at our company, it's just like, you know, you can't do anything. Everything is so locked down that unless it's officially approved, you can't put it on your machine.
4: Oh, Okay. No, no. We just we are told that uh, so long as they uh, we leave a, a, a reasonable proportion, they, they lay down, I think it's twenty gigs mm-hmm. uh, of the memory free. We can use the rest of the iPad for personal use. So that that's great. Means otherwise so otherwise I have to carry two. So uh, right. Um, it's great having just the one. Uh, and um, it it. I have to say the apps they've chosen uh, they're great. Uh, I am just about to have to sit down and do a half day training module on my computer to learn how to use the airbus uh, uh, performance uh, apps which um, look great i've played with them uh, but now they've actually got them for our specific aircraft types so uh, we will use those and they they give all your performance figures so they do your load sheet figures they um do your landing distance calculations all that kind of stuff and that's going to be a boon um uh, the jefferson uh, flight deck pro i think a lot of people have got that yeah we have that on the surface too yeah the only slight annoyance i have with that is that i mean they could have so much more in that i would love to be able to use my finger to draw a um, a line across the map and have a measurement or you know and be able to get bearings and off various bits and bobs and it just seems to me that it's a little uh, basic in its mm-hmm. uh, performance but it is very good i love the the uh, the way that you can go, use the maps. I mean, I've done, I did did a diversion not that long ago, uh, and I we'd only just been issued with them, and being able to pull up diversion plates uh, at the drop of a hat, and then when we landed, completely strange airfield, having uh, uh, the navigation symbol on the uh, airfield maps to help us uh, pick the right taxi routes uh, was just invaluable. It's fabulous. Yeah, uh, very good. But this other little app that he mentions, Logipad, which is, uh, I think, it's just something I, I up, uh, is a very useful app. It's, it basically keeps our, um, all our aircraft manuals on it. But uh, it also updates us with company news information. They can send us videos. They can send us letters. Uh, um, we've got a whole bunch of uh, electronic forms we can. Uh, fill out to feedback information about uh, various aspects of the flight that they want to know about um, and uh, we can download our rosters into it and we can use the uh, um, the web link to pull all our flight data before we get to the airport so we can study it on the bus uh, and that kind of stuff so um, I have to say you know compared with the old way of doing things this is uh, such a a boon, work saving, efficiency, uh, safety, it's all those factors built in. It's fabulous. I have to say something uh, very positive. I know
1: that I've been very negative about the uh, Microsoft Surface tablet that uh, uh, Acme chose. And uh, I, I keep hearing rumors as well, and I know Dana mentioned it last time, that uh, you know, the company is uh, possibly looking at uh, replacing the hardware with uh, Apple hardware. But I have to say that something that was just given or published for us and uh, just installed it uh, a couple of weeks ago on my Surface 3 tablet is this uh, Flight Weather Viewer Plus. And, you know, I, I talked about the Flight Weather Viewer that uh, application before, and it, it really details a lot of information about turbulence reports and everything. And I, I complained that I would much rather have an app that would give me radar return, like NexRad radar in in a bird's eye view, so we can do long-range strategic planning with uh, rerouting of trips and that kind of thing, or routes. And uh, they came up with this separate app that eventually will become combined with the original Flight Weather Viewer app called the Flight Weather Viewer Plus. And it is just uh, amazing. I am so happy to have it because it does Give us real time every five minutes. It updates and gives us um, radar information from Nexrad, and it presents it to us as a uh, like not in radar intensity as far as rainfall intensity, but it presents it as uh, the cloud tops, and and also you can select lightning and hail and that kind of thing. And it really, I mean, it's for me, it's like the bee's knees. I am thinking, oh, finally, finally, we have access to relatively real-time, you know, I think it's three to five minutes behind its next rad, so it's not real-time, real-time. But the reason why we have, you know, forward-looking onboard radar, that's, you know, that's for the real-time dynamic uh, maneuvering of the aircraft around active thunderstorm cells, et cetera. But just having the ability to look way down beyond the horizon and see that there's a weather system there and see that it's really kind of starting to close up your originally planned routing and to make a strategic decision early on in the flight and rerouting, you know, through ATC to avoid all those areas is really, really handy. And uh, I'm just, I'm really chuffed, as you say in the UK, we don't say that here, but uh, I think it's an appropriate uh, phrase to use. I'm very happy with this, uh, this new uh, plus app with the uh, next red data. Dana, have you been able to uh, use it? And what do you think?
5: Yes, I have used it, and I absolutely agree with you, Jeff, 100%. Uh, it's amazing. You know, Steph's aircraft has access to all this great information, you know, talking about uh, um, her being able to use, you know, the, the Bose A-20 and, and whatever else. It's because their avionics is so much more advanced than what we work with in the cockpit every day. And having that data available to us makes a world of difference. Uh, even yesterday, flying, uh, we, we had... Had to deal with some thunderstorms in the Atlanta area. And we had no clue where they were, what they looked like, how close they were to the airport. We had an airplane we could not land because we had to take a spray deflector off off the main landing gear. So by M.E.L., we were limited to not being able to land if it was wet out, And there was a cell, when I say it was on the downwind, it was three, four miles from the airport the most. And we didn't, we didn't, we couldn't get an accurate picture of that. We didn't know it was there, how close it was to the airport, as we're coming down. All we had was the dispatcher to tell us, well, this is where it kind of is, and this is where it's going, and whether it's moving. It would have been really nice to have that picture, and that picture was kind of given to us with this, you know, in the right direction app that, that was the white, the flight weather flight viewer too. Um, that we're uh, utilizing now, I think it's uh, given us a better picture. So yeah. we're going in the right
4: direction. Um, I, I'm a, I'm amazed with it uh, by the sounds of it, Jeff. Because if you can use it to like turn on and turn off hail and lightning, that'd be fantastic. You could just turn on the <laughs> hail and lightning and just
0: go straight through the middle. Yeah. So I just always <laughs> leave it
1: off because I don't want to see any hail. I don't want to see any lightning. So you turn it off and then you're good to go. Yeah, you just turn everything off. Great. Yeah, Uh, it's 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 really nice. And, you know, we've been complaining on the show for a long time that, you know, just what, 10, 15 feet behind us uh, uh, and back. People are have full access to Internet on our airplanes and have been given that access for a couple of years now, and we are not allowed to access it. And I'm thinking, hello you know we need some you know put on all the firewalls you want so we can't check our email and you know go to websites we're not supposed to go to but let let me get access to something that really impacts the safety of our operation i want to see the weather i want to be able to look at a birds eye view of the nexrad radar throughout the country and uh, and finally we have you know it's not perfect as Dana said, we're moving in the right direction. But may we, they've made some really bold moves and big steps, and I'm really just very, very happy about it. So
4: it's obviously better than the uh, the Jefferson app, uh, right? Yeah, now. yeah.
1: It is. It is. And, you know, we, um, on the ground, sometimes I'll load up the weather on the Jeppesen flight director, uh, flight deck pro app. And it's kind of like, yeah, you can kind of generally, generally see where the weather systems are and everything else, but it's kind of not the best information that you can get out there. And I believe that this flight weather viewer plus app that we're dealing with now at ACME really is a step above that by far. So, you know, and they say, and they promise it's going to get better. And, uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to uh, you know seeing well, that.
4: Yeah. Well, you guys are lucky because you've got so many uh, uh, weather radar stations available to you over the mainland states. Right, so unfortunately, that that is not available still, worldwide. <laughs> still a
1: limitation for the uh, our international crews. And they're saying that they're doing they're they're doing work to to kind of make it um, almost the equivalent of what we have domestically uh, on an international scale. So, um, hopefully, if if that's true and I have no reason to believe it's not then uh, that kind of information and that kind of application could be possibly made available or you know you'll be seeing something like that in the future as well yeah. although uh, again you know we're on we're working with different platforms but who knows you know the rumors are that we're going to be all on the same platform eventually no, so I do. I do. All right well it's very very late. Uh, thank you so yeah. much uh, Captain Nick for staying up so late I know that's You're a welcome, major sacrifice I think the APG. Pardon me?
4: Anything for the APG ah. and I want <laughs> listeners. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, thank you very oh, by much. by the way,
4: uh, while we, uh, the show's on, I've just got next month's roster. I've got a, another two-night New York, which will be brilliant, and uh, a San Fran, which I'm really looking forward to. I hope I get a chance to meet up with uh, Fred. And because uh, we, I've been promising to get there for ages, and then another short JFK. That's my month, so that'll, that looks a nice month.
1: Oh, we're we'll had to get together and get the actual dates and uh, see if we can work out something. That might be a lot of fun. Yeah, that'd be
4: brilliant. Anyway, I'm going to dive off, so I'm going to wish you okay. both well. You presumably going to finish up a bit. More. Uh,
1: we're going to wrap it up right now.
4: Oh, I? Okay, so stay with you till the bit end. Okay,
1: yes, we're. This is it. We uh, we have only one piece of uh, feedback left in the folder from Steve regarding uh uh, flight duty day uh extensions and we're going to talk about that on the next show because it's getting late for all of us Uh, i know that dana you probably i don't know if you have an early morning uh tomorrow morning or not but i know i do oh yeah me too (laughs) so and nick is uh you know well well past uh bedtime so uh, let's go ahead and end this thing if you want to learn more about the show head over to airlinepilotguy.com the website and you can find all kinds of information about the show um, and we have apps both on the uh, iOS and the Android platform. Social media, basically Twitter, uh, APG Crew, and Facebook. Airline Pilot Guy and uh, Hillel uh, has some information for us regarding. Well, does he? I don't know. Hello, are you there? No, he's not Slack. there today <laughs> Slack. But uh, Slack is something that he manages, and uh, you can contact. By uh, uh, contacting him via Twitter, he's at hi11e1, and he just needs your uh, email address information, and then he'll send you the information necessary to join us on Slack, which is a great platform to learn. Um, to introduce yourself, kind of tell people where you are, information about meetups, etc. is there. So check it out, and uh, until next time, wishing you clear skies and limited visibility. And tailwinds. Take care. God bless.
4: Bye, everyone. Have a great week. Bye, bye.
0: Good day. W A P G.
7: Airline pilot Guide